I'm a ghost. Put them with the bones. One of us, one of us, one of us. I'm short and hilarious. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that is a tease designed to prevent us accepting reality. I'm Kelly Anakin. <laughs> and I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. I wish I could work you out. I know. That is the challenge of marriage. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's what keeps it fun. <laughs> if you knew all about me, we'd be so bored. Yeah, that's true. As we can see uh, from this episode of Downton Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, welcome back, everybody. We're here to recap Downton Abbey Series 5, Episode 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, a corker of an episode, yeah. in my humble opinion. This yeah. may be my favorite episode so far. Yeah. No, I think I think I would say the same, yeah. We've got, we've got a lot of great stuff to dissect. But first, it's time to announce our Cousin of the Week. Cousin Carol writes, Hi, Kelly and Tom. I have been listening to your podcast for years now, and I just love, love, love it. Right now, I'm in my glory because I finally found Parades End and watched it so I could listen to those old podcasts. And so right now, I listen to the Downton podcasts, both the instant takes and then the full episode, then go back to the Parades End. So basically, it's Kelly and Tom radio on my dial all the time. (laughs) I hope it's okay to stretch your memory back to 2013 when you did the Parades End series and ask a question. And if it is not, I guess you will ignore this email and I will just be forever curious. Why Mary Culligan? I even Googled Mary Culligan and got some Facebook and LinkedIn hints, but that was it. By the way, on that first episode, every time you said sea batch, I kept hearing sea batch, S-E-A-B-A-T-C-H, right. and was trying to figure out the name. Then I listened to the next episode where you spelled it out. Duh. Regarding Seabatch, I, like Kelly, was not getting his attraction, although the bare chest scene near the end when he and Sylvia almost do it, that's a reference to Kelly's fashion backwards segment I heard today, (laughs) almost turned me into a believer. I'll be interested to hear what Kelly thinks. I haven't listened to that recap yet. Now on to my burning question about Downton, and maybe you won't be able to answer it until Series 5 is over. How are you restraining yourselves this season? When I'm listening to you recap, I keep thinking, but they already know what's going to happen. I keep listening for clues about what is going to happen, but so far I don't think you have let on about anything. I keep wondering if it is not as fun for you, because it seems to me you usually like to pontificate about what is going to happen. And obviously you can't do that as well if you know what is going to happen. I don't know if I like this. I feel we are missing out on your first cut emotions about an episode. I completely understand why you would watch this series on the British timeline, but why not just do your full-blown podcast then? I could wait to listen when I watch this series in January, and others that stream it could listen on your timeline. That's just my opinion. Maybe there were other reasons you did it this way, and I apologize if you explained it at some point. As much as I love you guys, I don't listen to all the podcasts in the off-seasons. I'm not a Titanic fan. Celine ruined it for me. <laughs> Thanks again for entertaining and educating me, and keep up the excellent work. Very truly yours, Cousin Carol. Cousin Carol, thanks for writing in. Mm-hmm. This is fun yeah. to answer questions oh, yeah, about what we're doing and why we do <laughs> and, it. And why. <laughs> <laughs> why do we do this podcast? <laughs> well, uh, so to start off with Mary Colligan, yes. that was that was your creation, Kelly. It was. Uh, we started calling her Mary Culligan because we felt that the actress who played Valentine mm-hmm. in Parade's End looked exactly like Carrie Mulligan. 
Yes. Uh, so we started calling her Carrie Mulligan. Mary Culligan. This is very confusing. <laughs> right. This it's is like when twister. I have to actually say the phrase upstairs, downstairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm like, does not compute. <laughs> so uh, anyway, that is why we named her that. And we found out, and this may come up in one of those recaps, because I think we talked about it, but uh, Mary Culligan, whose name I don't even remember. Like, what, right. what is her real name? <laughs> I have no idea. She was also a very strong contender for the role of Daisy in Baz Luhrmann's adaptation of The Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. And she was in the movie. I think she was just a party guest or something right. like that um so that's why we call her that you know that's also why you can't find anything <laughs> on google about it uh yeah. just a, a play on words <laughs> like we do uh because yeah and i'll let you sadly imdb still refuses to list our alternate <laughs> names for actors that's an option on imdb i think you can go in and be like sometimes referred to as <laughs> um and as to whether or not i am attracted to Seabatch. Here's what I would say, and I think we discussed this again there, but I'm going to go ahead and say it now because sure. I like talking about it. Because I honestly, I think about this. <laughs> like, I think about this more than you might suppose. <laughs> right. But as far as Seabatch is concerned, not attracted to Seabatch, but like weirdly attracted to Christopher Tegens. Right. The character that he plays in Parade's yeah. End. Um, particularly by the late part of the series mm-hmm. um he's just he's very noble yeah and i find that really hot yeah well i mean that makes sense it's like i've said about john ham that i never understood why mm-hmm. people thought he was attractive until i saw him as don draper mm-hmm. and i was like oh i get it yeah and i think i think seabatch's physicality and placement in that time period made him very attractive mm-hmm. um plus you know there was a lot of crazy shit happening around <laughs> him and i am a big uh big chaos uh enthusiast i don't know i get i get very excited by men who are at the center of some kind of maelstrom of you know emotional or uh contextual awfulness right so that is how i feel about that (laughs) and then uh in terms of sort of you know why are we recapping this way and and how do we manage it yeah so we started doing the instant takes this season Kind of as a bridge. Right. Uh, so, I mean, if you're looking for our, like, unvarnished emotional reactions. Possibly drunk. Oh, <laughs> almost certainly. Uh, the instant takes are sort of where that is living. Right. And honestly, just from the perspective of us doing it, I liked it a lot. Yeah. Um, because we do a lot of prep work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for the full-blown recaps. And part of the reason we didn't do the full-blown recaps when the original airing happened, we just weren't planning to do it. Right. It was and, a, kind of a last minute decision. Yeah. And our schedules are pretty hectic. Yeah. I mean, we're recording this at, you know, nine 30 in the morning <laughs> on a Saturday. <laughs> I've been up since seven. Yeah. Uh, reviewing the episode. So it really, in a lot of ways, the programming choices that we make have more to do with our particular schedules, mm-hmm. um, and sort of where we're at and what we're doing. Yeah. And then as far as, you know, not doing spoilers or anything like that, I mean, we covered the first two seasons having seen them already and tried to kind of be non-spoilery about it. I don't remember how hard we worked at that, but... I don't think it was... I don't find it to be that difficult. Well, yeah. I mean, and honestly, I mean, there are things that happened in this season. It's been weird this time since we did do the instant takes and like right. going back and being like, oh, right, that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. But we... I mean, because the recaps are strictly limited to these episodes... Yeah. We don't have to really worry too much about looking forward. Yeah. And I mean, you know, in terms of our our speculating about what's going to happen, I mean, it's 
well, especially since those those early seasons, it's been more about what we think ought to happen, which mm-hmm. often is just about as much things they ought to have done several episodes yeah. ago by now or things <laughs> like that, you know? Yeah. And I mean, you know, we don't want to ruin anything for anybody. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the speculation that we had, I mean, if it was an interesting or good speculation, like we remember that. Right. Like we didn't write it down or anything. But, you know, you you just kind of yeah. speculate as best you can and try not to, you know, I think the only handicap that it gives you is that you don't want to speculate if you then know that that is what happens. Right. Um, but, you know, I I feel like this has been pretty fun. Yeah, I agree. Like I, as much as, you know, it can be difficult to squeeze in all of the work mm-hmm. that goes into it, like just recording it is always a really good time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so... Um, that is why we do the things that we do <laughs> yeah. on the timeline that we do them. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So hopefully that answers your questions, yeah. Cousin Carol. And thanks for listening. Absolutely. Uh, again, I think we've said this several times, but if you have not yet watched Parade's End and listened to our recaps, you should absolutely do that. Yeah. At least do yourself a favor and watch Parade's End. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Yeah. It's much better than our recaps of it. Oh, absolutely. Which, Which is true is... of most things we do, although not necessarily all things we do. <laughs> Titanic Blue Steel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When she said that she's not a fan of Titanic, I was like, I was a fan of Titanic <laughs> until Titanic Blooded Steel ruined my life. Drowned in a sea of blue. <laughs> I'm blue. da ba dee ba ba Oh, blue. No. So, yeah. So, that's Cousin of the Week. Mm-hmm. If you would like to get in touch with us for any reason, uh, you can feel free to write us a telegram. We're upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. You can send us a tweet, a.k.a. Carrier Pigeon, at 5 Maggie Smiths. That's at 5, the number 5 Maggie Smiths. Or you can just search Up Yours Downstairs exclamation point on Facebook. See how easy that is for me? Yeah. No, you you're, struggled. You're a you real, struggled. You're a real pro, Kelly. Listen, uh, that is not true. <laughs> because if I was a real pro, I would be getting paid for doing that. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and we're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we always love hearing from people. Yeah. Um, it's been really fun to sort of see people live tweeting mm-hmm. as we go through these recaps. Y- yeah. So keep it coming. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think now it is time to dive into this particular recap. Yes, it is. Let's do it. All right. So we see Thomas walking towards Downton with a briefcase. He's a business under Butler. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the servants are down eating luncheon, and Thomas arrives just as Carson stands up, signaling the end of the meal. So I have a question, and I don't think we ever discussed this, but it's like when Carson's done eating and stands up, like if you haven't finished your meal, are you just shit out of luck? I, I think so. I, I Well, mean, and judging from his behavior throughout the rest of this episode, <laughs> that would be entirely in keeping with this character. Yeah. But I mean, I think, you know, I think in general he doesn't stand up if it's like you know clear that he's raced through his meal but who knows maybe i mean you know he's he's got a house to run man but you know he has managed to keep most of this staff that's true and i would think that if you were working at a place where you didn't even get to complete your meal you'd be like fuck this yeah i mean he's kept most of the staff i'm gonna go capitalize on this servant problem i keep hearing about (laughs) that hasn't died in the war or (laughs) had sex with an aristocrat in a burning house Ah, uh, Jimmy Kent. We hardly knew ye. <laughs> I know, man. I miss Jimmy Kent. I know. <laughs> I don't even know what he was just he was just delightful. He was. It's surprising. You don't know what you got till it's gone. Mm. They paved Jimmy Kent and put up a parking lot. 
So yeah, Carson's like, oh, Thomas, you're too late to eat, but just in time to work. Woohoo! Hughes is like, you know, being the nice person that she is, because there might still be some food left, I would imagine so. But Thomas says he's not hungry, and Carson says charming as ever. Yeah, just like you, Carson. No, and like, he didn't even do anything! I All know. he did was say he is not hungry! <laughs> Which you would think you would like to hear. So yeah, Baxter asks after Thomas's father, and Thomas says that he's all better now. So it seems like there's some games afoot here. It, it does. Thomas himself also looks a little peaked. He does in this scene. Mm-hmm. Upstairs uh, at breakfast. No, I guess luncheon. Yeah, I would think. I have such a difficult time differentiating between breakfast and luncheon. Although obviously yes. this is luncheon because like everybody's there. Well, right. But Branson reminds Lord Grantham that they're meeting that Leeds guy at three, whose name I never caught. Yeah, it's like Wavel, I think. Oh, but somebody else wrote in to ask about subtitles, and it wasn't Cousin Carol. Uh They're like, you know, why do you guys watch the show with subtitles? Um, And basically, it's for spelling. Yeah. uh, Primarily. The accents on this show aren't super thick. We're not like at Wind That Shakes the Barley levels of unintelligibility. But uh, sometimes when there's, especially for proper names, mm-hmm. it's hard, at least for me, I have a hard time pronouncing a name that I can't quite hear uh-huh. uh, if I haven't seen it spelled. But yeah. if I see it spelled, then I, it makes sense to me. So. Well, that too. And even if there's just one or two lines in you know per episode that are kind of mumbled a little bit and we're not sure, yeah. there was one in this episode where Prince Karagan said something that I couldn't quite make mm-hmm. out. You know, we like, to, we like to get all the details. Yeah, we like to be uh, thorough. We do. So anyway, uh, they're meeting this Leeds guy at 3 p.m., but Lord Grantham says it's a futile meeting because he's not going to change his mind. And I'm like, you're a terrible, you know, co-runner of this estate. <laughs> like, he is so annoying. Right. Well, it's like, is this how you begin every business meeting? It's like the <laughs> Dread Pirate Roberts of inefficient <laughs> management of the estate. <laughs> Good night, Branson. I'll most likely not change my name in the morning. Like, change my name. Change yeah, my mind. Well, right. Look. It's all crazy. <laughs> the Dowager Countess tells Rose that she's had a letter from Shrimpy. Shrimpy! Who's in London. And McGee asks if Rose has plans to see him. Rose says, you know, not yet. But he wonders if he could stay at Downton while he is in Britain. And McGee says, of course, because, you know, she's a nice lady. Right. Like, obviously. Yeah. Unlike Lord Grantham, who is not <laughs> a nice lady. But Lord Grantham asks if Susan is coming over from Bombay, and apparently their time serving in Bombay is nearly up, and Susan didn't want to make the journey twice in right. a year, which is understandable. Yeah, That's, that's a- got to be a rough passage. Agreed. Thomas is serving, and there are many close-ups of his face. So, uh, yeah, so file that away. Right. Something significant could God, be afoot. God forbid he have any lines. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't have lines well, in here. Well, yeah, but that's true. That'd be weird. Lord Grantham asks where he'll be sent after Bombay, and then Mary shakes her head at him, and then Isabel awkwardly asks Rose about her Russians. <laughs> yeah. Because they are her pets. They are. She says that they're very sad and poor, and that well, they're talking about their memories of, you know, dancing at the Winter Palace, and like, didn't they go anywhere else? <laughs> um, but, you know, they have holes in their shoes, and they don't have money for food. Yeah. And, like, I don't feel that bad. Yeah. I don't I, feel uh, that bad. I don't particularly either. I also like that I- Isabel is definitely glad to have a protege in the meddling game. Oh, God. Yeah. She's like, you know, <laughs> feel the meddling course through your veins. It is the power. I don't even know what side that would be. No, I don't know Like, either. the meddling side seems too redundant. Yeah. 
it is the power of the dilettante side. <laughs> I don't know. But she's excited about that. Yeah. Lord Grantham, Lord Grantham does not acquit himself well in this episode. No. And it starts now. Yes. Because all she said, you know, Rose is just saying a perfectly appropriate, right. you know, upper class thing to say about Isabel and people. Rose are just trying to change, like, make non-awkward conversation. And Lord Grantham is like, no. <laughs> He's like all awkward all the time. I take my cues from Edith. <laughs> So he then just like lays into Branston and he's like, oh, you must be happy about these Russian aristocrats being destitute. Yeah. And no, because Branson's a pussy. Uh, but anyway, right. Branson points out that he doesn't approve of how things were managed in Russia. And I love <laughs> that he and the homely liberal keep saying that. Right. When I'm like, oh, you mean like, oh, the gross... Uh, abuses of power that those with the divine right of rule inflicted upon the underclasses. I know. You make it sound like their HR director was kind of off his game. <laughs> <Right>? like, <laughs> uh, but he feels sorry for people who have to make a new life in a foreign land from scratch. And again, I'm like, right. are you once again inappropriately comparing your situation to that of people who were literally driven from their home? Right. Like, for reasons... Because- I mean, it's hard to say how much these people had to do with Sure, sure. Uh, and we're not really given too much insight into that in this. Yeah, you know, yeah. couldn't have all been dances at the Winter Palace. Presumably <laughs> right. they were enacting some kind of law. You, but I'm you just like, so. Branson, just stop talking. Right. Like, well, can't you be the Harpo? <laughs> <laughs> just playing the harp and doing that mirror thing. I like the idea of Mary being the Groucho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she's like, no, I'm not wearing that mustache. <laughs> It makes me look ridiculous. I guess Edith is the Chico then. Which one? No, wasn't Zeppo the one who wasn't around much? Oh yeah, that's true. I feel true. like she's the Zeppo. That's good. Yeah. yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah. So I guess that makes Rose the Chico. Oh yeah. Yeah. I like this idea. Yeah, no, that let's, works out. Let's make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> let's do that. Yeah. Downton soup? <laughs> yeah. I also, if Branson is saying that he started a new life from scratch, Scratch does not include free room and board in a mansion. Right. I'm just no, gonna... and I don't think I do. I honestly don't think he's taking it that far. Okay. I think Fair the thing enough. he said previously about you know anybody who is you know driven from their home, all right, or whatever. But like, I don't know. Anyway, anyway, look, bad form, Branson. Yeah. Stop talking. <laughs> yeah. Although worse form, Lord Grantham. Uh huh. Because he. uh Oh, no. Yeah, Yeah, because I mean, because he started the conversation. So then Mary points out to Lord Grantham that when he starts going in on Tom, he actually sounds more unreasonable than Tom. And this is true. Yeah. I mean, and I I don't understand why anyone is on Lord Grantham's side at any point (laughs) thus far this series. Yeah. I'm like, he's not really helping anybody. Right. He's really just become super cranky (laughs) and is uh, like impeding progress at every turn. Yeah. Like he's starting to make Carson look progressive. Yeah. Well, don't worry. Carson will take care of that. He then continues his parade of tactfulness (laughs) by asking after the Dowager's old beau, Prince Thingabajig. Yeah. uh, Which is nice. There's nothing, there's nothing classier than rich people pretending they can't pronounce foreign names. I know. It's really, uh, it's really charming. Yeah, it makes them look good. It looks good on everyone, really. <laughs> so, the dowager denies that he was ever her beau and that the previous earl would have called him out for the accusation. Yeah. Oh my god, you know what I just realized? What? Well, if we do get this prequel about McGee and Lord Grantham, we would actually probably meet 
the old Earl. The original, or, well, yeah, and the original. this makes me excited about him. Yeah. Because I'm like, dude, yeah. he was alive during the dueling times, mm-hmm. and it sounds like he made good on some duels. Yeah. Let's and, see that. No, and I'm, I'm very, I'm very curious about him and like what yeah. his deal was. Cause yeah. honestly, they, all, they talk about him less than they talk about Matthew. <laughs> and he was around longer. Yeah. In their lives. I mean, longer ago, yeah. but yeah. At any rate, Edith uh, says that she hopes the Dowager sees him again. And then the Dowager just snaps at her and says, you don't know anything about it. And yeah. Edith just looks like somebody punched her in the face. Well, it's fair enough. Edith was just, again, just making polite conversation. No, and saying, it's a person you knew. He seemed excited to see you. You seem yeah. like you don't have much of a life. <laughs> I'd, uh, it yeah. just, it sucks. Yeah. So down at Pip's Corner, Lord Grantham, Branson, and Mary are discussing the Leeds proposal without the man from Leeds there. And so, but they have a blueprint, I guess, and they're looking over it. Lord Grantham asks why they can't be row houses. Uh, and Branson says that apparently individual houses will sell more quickly. Uh, also, it's not Baltimore. <laughs> get your shit together. Right. And uh, when they sell quickly, the estate will get a cut. Mm-hmm. Lord Grantham says that so they get paid once and then the field is spoiled forever and Leeds guy will move on in search of his next victim. And I'm like, uh, honestly, that field is not so great. And nobody's there. Right. There's not anybody frolicking in that field. <laughs> That's right. There's no fucking wood sprites <laughs> dancing around making mischief for us mortals. Yeah. Pretty pedestrian field, if you ask The only me. person who's enjoying it is Isis, and that is because she has fun wherever she goes. That's right. She's like that fine lady from Banbury Cross. <laughs> so uh, Leeds guy waves at them from across the field, and Branson goes over to keep him from speaking a line and getting paid scale. I also just want to point out that maybe if Lord Grantham fought more like this man from Leeds, he wouldn't keep losing all of their money. <laughs> like, that's capitalism, comrade. Well, Get your fucking shit together. He won't. Isabel and the Dowager are walking through York, uh, which is apparently a surprised Isabel. Like, <laughs> right. Was the Dowager just like, hey, get in this car? <laughs> she pulled out a gun. <laughs> You're coming with me, sister. Follow me if you want to live. <laughs> so uh, the Dowager says she didn't bring it up before because she didn't want their visit to be a topic at luncheon. And I'm like, couldn't you have called? Like, you all have phones now. <laughs> I know. We've seen you use it. <laughs> Uh, and just be like, hey, we're going to Leeds. Maybe let's not talk about it. Right. Although, honestly, I would not ever trust Isabel to keep a secret. Yeah. You'd be like, oh, this reminds me of what the, you know, <laughs> cousin Violet said. This reminds me of our secret trip we have upcoming. <laughs> uh, Isabel asks why they're in York because she is not the brightest crawler in the box. <laughs> And the Dowager Countess is vague and is then complaining about why they didn't get a taxi from the station. And I'm like, yeah, you're like... 400 years old yeah you you're at the age and super rich yeah like and you have this walking stick and i can't tell if it's just to make you intimidating or because you (laughs) legitimately have an infirmity but like come on man yeah they arrive at a church and uh they they comment that oh it's in the crypt which sounds cryptic (laughs) yeah so yeah, the Russians are living in this crypt, apparently. Uh, and Which is a little on the nose. Oh, uh, you know, Vika, where should we put these Russian refugees? <laughs> the crypt! <laughs> They're Russian. They'll love it. Put them with the bones. <laughs> David Boreanaz and uh, the lesser Deschanel show up. <laughs> They're like, we think some of these people might have been murdered. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, it's, and I mean, it's pretty dark, pretty unpleasant. Not like as unpleasant as getting your 
your peasant hut burned down by the Tsar's Cossacks in the middle of a Russian winter unpleasant. Or just Russian winter in general. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. No matter where you are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, you can see that it's uh, not a great living situation. It's worse than the Dowager was expecting. I'm not even sure that they're living there. No, you're probably right. I don't, I don't know. It's hard to say. Because, I mean, if they don't have money for food, they yeah. probably don't have money for lodging. I it mean, they've probably yeah. got some miserable quarters somewhere yeah. that are also unpleasant. In any case, whatever they're doing there, uh, Rose is ladling out soup and sees them. And she is, looks really adorable. She does. Yeah. Yeah. These, <laughs> these miserable poor people really make her look good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my element. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the dowager says that they wanted to surprise her, which obviously they did, and then she sees Karagan. Uh, she says, oh, you must be, I must be the last person you expected to see. He's like, no, I knew you would come. <laughs> Rasputin was my great, great grand uncle. <laughs> I have gifts. <laughs> I think Rasputin was, like, pretty modern. I think he was one of the, like, more recent. Was he? Yeah, I think. I always think of him being, like, I guess it's just the was mysticism he, piece. Was he in the animated movie Anastasia? He was, so it actually was yeah. this Tsar. Yeah. So uh, I was friends with Rasputin. Yeah, there we go. When he died. <laughs> I took on his power. <laughs> <laughs> right, because he was like BFFs with uh, Alexandra. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she was like, hey, everybody. And they're like, why are you hanging out with this ugly dude all the time? And he was like, I know, right? <laughs> I can't believe either. <laughs> I can because I am psychic. And yet. <laughs> Sorry. I just thought of a great Russian version of a musical called Nyet Nyet Nanet. <laughs> oh, it's about a British lady that goes to Russia. Sold. Uh, so she introduces Isabel and he reintroduces Spektolnikov, uh, whose name is apparently Count Rostov. Oh, well, good for him. Yeah, great. Uh, and the Dowager's pretty dope because she he he says this is uh Rostov and she's like, "Oh, Count Rostov, if I oh, recall, you know." Right, yeah, yeah. Cuz she's classy lady. She is. So he offers them seats. The Dowager says that she was surprised to see Karagin. Yeah, she's like, "Sorry, I was straight tripping last time." Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he says that he has changed, but she has not. Uh, and she recalls her turning eyes in the ballroom or in her carriage in the snow. Which sounds a bit intimate. It does. In mixed company. Mm -hmm. Like, somebody cover Isabel's ears. She doesn't know how sex works. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. She's the Shmee Skywalker of the Crawleys. (laughs) She's like, oh, there was no father. (laughs) Only ever my overbite. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's Matthew. (laughs) Oh, God. That explains a lot. Yeah. So he says that... Uh, now she is the great lady and her life has not changed much over the years. The Dowager says that it doesn't seem that way to her, which, come on, Dowager. Uh, look, look who you're talking have to. Have you ever not lived at Downton Abbey? <laughs> right. <laughs> Except for those, like, you know, two months you were in Russia? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but he says that the handsome and powerful Prince Karagin does not exist anymore. Which, like, I am all about having healthy self-esteem, but I am like, you were not that handsome. Well, and listen, you know. I prefer a busted face. I'm all like, <laughs> if I was the Dowager's age, I would be all about this dude. I would be like, you with your crazy hair. Like, listen, let's let's do you a makeover. Let's have a whole Beauty and the Beast situation happen here. Uh, you know, we're gonna get you know this candle to cut your hair and stuff. <laughs> 
I'm a footman, madam. I keep telling you. I'm sorry. It was actually a hat rack. I just don't want anybody oh, you're right. getting yeah, you upset want... about continuity. Yeah, well, it would have been a problem if Lumiere had been doing the haircut. I know, right? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. It would have stunk everything up for days. <laughs> anyway, but I'm like, but I'm kind of like, Ugh. like, I feel like maybe you're viewing the past and your appearance through some rose colored glasses. Uh, but you know what, man? You're in a shit situation, yeah. so I'm going to let it go. Like, whatever you were, you ain't no more. Mm-hmm. That's fair. The Dowager Countess is moved by his plight. Ah, Maggie Smith is killing it. And I love this. I just love her adventures with Isabel. Yeah. Like, they've had several yeah. throughout this series so far, and this is a great one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always great. Back downstairs at Downton, uh, Carson tells Molesley to go clean some silver because Barrow is out. And after all, Molesley is the first footman. Uh, and he goes in and it's like this huge pile of silver. I'm like, what is this? Fifty Shades of Carson? <laughs> He's obviously like getting off on this. Right. He is. And it makes all Molesley did was just say almost jokingly that since he's the only footman, he guesses he's first footman now. Yeah. And Carson is like, this insult must be avenged. It's ridiculous. Do not like. Mm-hmm. Back at the church basement, the Dowager says that she has come about the princess to get more info there. And Karagan says it's true. He has no idea where she is or what she's doing. Uh, they were arrested together, but when he got out of prison, he heard that she had been exiled a year before, but nobody knew where. Isabel's like, well, surely somebody must know. Boy, her faith in governments really disturbs me. Yeah. Like, she's like, oh, well, this shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> right. I'm like, are you familiar with wars? Yeah, and revolutions, but, you know. Didn't you go to the front that time? Like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah, there was all kinds of problems locating people during World War One, uh, including your own son Matthew. Right. Remember when he was missing in action? You were all worked up. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Karagin's like, "Oh yeah, the Soviet ambassador is definitely going to help find this exiled princess." Oh yeah, definitely. That's like, that's going to be stop. You had me at princess. <laughs> <laughs> Cancel all my meetings. <laughs> Uh, so Isabel suggests the foreign office, and Karagin is like, uh, the foreign office don't help losers. It's true. Yeah. Like, come on. Like, that's the new government. Yeah. And whether the Brits like it or not, that's the government they have to treat with. Right. So Isabel just give, <laughs> finally is just like, well, don't give up hope. And Karagin's like, dude, I'm Russian. Giving up hope is our national pastime. Like, all vodka is, <laughs> is giving up hope. <laughs> In a shot glass. We only ever hope to relish giving up hope later. (laughs) (laughs) And the Dowager uh, essentially agrees. This is a great line. Yeah. Like, this is such a good line where she says that hope is a tea is designed to prevent us accepting reality. Yeah. And I'm like, damn. And, like, Prince Karagin is like, yes, you understand. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Russia. (laughs) I wonder if they call that crypt Little Russia. (laughs) (laughs) They should. Malenki Russia. Isabel does not think it's a great line. She says she only thinks it. She only says that to sound clever. And the Dowager says, "I know. You should try it." Boom. Yeah. Sweet burn. That is true. Right. Well, because you can be clever and also have a lot of trenchant insights. Yeah. Sometimes you can sound clever because you're being clever. Yeah. Because being clever is like well, in particular, if if she's using the British meaning of clever, which is intelligent. Right. You know. Yeah. I'm not sure that Isabel is doing that, but... Yeah, hard to say. 
Mary Branson and Lord Grantham are walking in the village. Oh, uh, Isis is there as well. She's yeah. been on this entire jaunt. Mm-hmm. And then Branson goes to call on the blacksmith. And I'm like, why? I don't know. What possible business do you have with the blacksmith? Well, I'm sure he, you know, shoes their various horses and Probably. whatnot. Do Maybe. they still have horses? I think they've still got a... I th- oh, they would, I guess, if they were going to have a shooting party. Yeah. Yeah. I think they've still yeah. got some around. I don't know. We haven't seen them. Yeah, maybe the blacksmith owes him money. Branson's going to go in and bust up the place. <laughs> uh, he would just probably like knock over a cabinet and be, sorry, uh, I'm not very good at this. Uh, forget the money. I'm, I'll pay you for the cabinet. I almost burned down an estate once, <laughs> but I failed. <laughs> uh, Irish accent. I'm not yeah, good at it. No. I'm sorry again, everybody. This happens every year. <laughs> uh, Lord Grantham and Mary see Mrs. Patmore just standing and looking at where they're putting up the war memorial and fretting. Yeah. And Lord Grantham is like, oh, Mrs. Patmore. And she's like, oh, crap. And she just like <laughs> runs away. Yeah. Lord Grantham wonders what it's all about and asks Mary uh, why she gave him dagger eyes <laughs> at luncheon about Shrimpy. And Mary says she suspects he is divorcing Susan and coming to tell Rose. And then Lord Grantham is shocked and says that Shrimpy's career will now be over. Right. And I'm like, what career? Uh, you know, lounging about in Bombay. Ugh. So Mary says, you know, that Lord Grantham has said himself the Marlboros have survived worse. But Lord Grantham says that the Marlboros are rich, unlike Shrimpy, who hasn't got a bean. Let I'm alone like, a shrimp. He might <laughs> He might have a bean. <laughs> he probably does. They probably have, you know, they have them in India. Yeah, that's true. A lot of vegetarians there. Yeah. Mary asks if uh, the family will drop Shrimpy in the divorce. And Lord Grantham says he won't take sides. And neither will Isis, who trots on ahead right. like the regal dogager she is. Yes. Bates walks into the boot room and smiles, which is weird because the boot room is awful and he never smiles anymore. This is like in the book about the Spider-Man musical. Right. The name of which suddenly escapes me for some reason. Song of the Spider-Man. So they have, oh my God, fucking theater people. Uh, they have the writer and I think one of the crew members have somebody come in to smudge with Sage yes, and clear out all the negative energy. I just love that there are people who do that for a living. Yeah. Like that is their living. People are like, uh, can you come burn some Sage? And they're like, yeah, that's like really easy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but Uh, they're like, I know don't you need to look weird and say some weird (laughs) things while you do it. They're like, oh yeah, no problem. Uh, (laughs) let me just get in my closet. But, uh, in that book, there's a point at which this person goes down into the orchestra pit and is like, whoa, this place is full of negative vibes, man. Stay out of this. Yeah. And that is where... Uh, that guy nearly dies. Yeah. So, aha, yeah. coincidence. Maybe that person wasn't a legit stage burner. Right. But uh, In any case... Maybe they were just like, oh, you're swinging people from the <laughs> ceiling and you've got this concrete thing here. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid, avoid the noid. Right. May just be a civil engineer that couldn't get a job. <laughs> anyway, but uh, the boot room is the equivalent of the orchestra pit, <laughs> yes. is my point. They really need to get some sage in there. They really do. Uh, plus, it's just weird when Bates smiles and creepy. Like, I don't like I, it anymore. I used to like him, man. I know. It just, uh, I guess, you know, well, everything, everything fades. That's true. I still like Anna fine. Yeah. So Anne is there. That's obviously why he was smiling. Asks if he'll help her out with her shoes. And he does. But he like stabs like <laughs> the, I don't know what you call that. The things that you put in shoes to help them keep their shape when you're right. traveling. Um, which I don't have any of. Which is why my shoes look like a disaster. <laughs> but uh, he just like stabs it in there. And I'm like, ah, don't <laughs> shake that shoe. <laughs> 
He asked her when she's leaving. She says she's leaving early the next day so that Mary can catch a dress show with Rosamond. And uh, Anna hopes that Officer Bummer hasn't been worrying Bates, and she wishes that they could all just forget about Mr. Green. You and me both. Everybody wishes that. Literally everybody. Yeah. Except for Neem <laughs> and Fellows. And Fellows. Back at the Dower House, Isabel asked the Dowager why she wanted Isabel to come with her. And the Dowager says she wanted to keep things from turning mawkish. <laughs> the same reason that she chaperoned Isabel with Murdy. And then Isabel asks if she and Karagan were once attracted to each other. And the Dowager Countess says, oh, that's what you'd call it? And Isabel's like, yes, I don't know how sex works. <laughs> uh, she says that he once asked her to run away with him. But then Lord Grant, OGLG, <laughs> that's a new one, guys. <laughs> yeah. So OGLG uh, gave her a Fabergé frame with pictures of their children in them. And she saw sense. And she, I'd never seen our children before. So it was rather <laughs> exciting. Isabel is very impressed. And again, like they had never talk about him. Yeah. And the Dowager says that OGLG hid his qualities behind a mask of conventionalism. Right. Which only makes me more interested in this yeah, guy. Yeah, right. Uh, and then Isabel says that the Dowager's lucky she found out that he was, you know, a person with qualities. Like, it's not even clear if these are positive attributes. Right. Just, well, that she found out she didn't want to leave him yeah. for whatever reason. And she says it's lucky she found out in time and the Dowager forgets if it was in time. Just and like, I'm like, ooh, whoa. this is crazy. Yeah. Getting deep with the Dowager. Mm-hmm. Pat Moore yells at Daisy to put those ballet books away. Uh, she should have started the pastry casings by now. Daisy says that she's studying the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Pat Moore says that they'll be having a Glorious Revolution down here if Daisy doesn't watch it, which suggests that Pat Moore may have missed the point <laughs> of the Glorious Revolution. Uh, so she storms on down the hallway to the kitchen, complaining to Hughes about it. Uh, Hughes also notices Thomas taking a mixing spoon and asks, like, she hopes he's not cooking up in his room. Mosley says that she ought to investigate him, but Baxter says she's sure it's nothing. Great. Yeah. So glad we all had this time. The case of the missing spoon. It's not even missing. He put it back. <laughs> we see Murdy. Murdy! Yeah. He, uh, he walks up, uh, to Isabel's and stands there sort of hesitantly and, uh, reluctantly knocks the door. Isabel's out gardening in her wacky gardening outfit. <laughs> yeah. And she comes, you know, up to meet him and he stammers and they're so awkward together, but like in the exact same, like yeah. they're both totally comfortable being exactly as awkward as they are with each other. Yeah. Which honestly I think might be the most important possible quality in a relationship. Yeah. Compatible awkwardness. Um, I know that was one of our first conversations. Mm -hmm. So anyway, Isabel asks him inside and inside she sits on the couch and offers Murdy a seat next to her, but he chooses a chair instead. Mm -hmm. Murdy says he's been putting off having some, he's, he's just like, I've been putting it off. Right. And we know he doesn't mean it right. because if they're the same kind of awkward, he also doesn't know how sex works. <laughs> right. Uh, Isabel says that she hopes he won't regret it. And he says that uh, she might regret it, but he will not. He stands up and says he's afraid if he went down on one knee, he wouldn't be able to get up again. And says he's asking for her hand in marriage. Murdabelle! Murdabelle for the win! That's Is right. Isamert. <laughs> I know. I should stop trying to make Isamert happen. No, I think I think it's a fun uh, dichotomy yeah, at this I point. Yeah, I agree. 
So she starts to say no, but then he sits by her and he says, I'm not asking you out of loneliness or needing comfort like most men of his age, but he is legit falling in love with her. And Isabel is very surprised yeah. by all this talk of love as she thought she was incapable of such feelings. <laughs> but he asks her, you know, to sort of leave it on the table and actually consider it before straight up telling him no. And Isabel says that after his lovely speech, it would be ungenerous to refuse, which I don't uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, I know. She, I mean, she's clearly been affected. And yeah. She's trying to mask that fact. But it's yeah. like, ladies, don't let men with their fancy talk come <laughs> in and make you feel bad about what you want. Right. But so, he also, like, to be fair, Murdy's like, just like, before you refuse me. Yeah. He, you know, he knows that that's what she wants to do at that yeah. point. He's like, that's fine. I mean, fine. it's very clever of Murdy. Yeah. But anyway, he says he'll go ahead and take his leave because ordinary conversation would be difficult after that. And Isabel's like, ordinary conversation eludes me at most moments. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was really nice. Yeah. That it's a great scene. so great. No, man. Can we get rid of all these young chuckleheads and just <laughs> hang out with the old people? Yeah. Because it's like, and then there's Karagin. <laughs> like, he's crazy. Yeah. I want to see, you know, like, you know, Prince Karagin's day out in New York. <laughs> like, what does he do all day? Does he just stand around and brood uh, until someone approaches to see if he's fine? Is and, no, I'm not fine. <laughs> I'm Russian. <laughs> At Downton, Lord Grantham asks McGee why that man Bricker is coming back. Because we're all shipping them. That's why, you dolt. She says that he wants to investigate a link between their Della Francesca and a later one. Lord Grantham says, well, Shrimpy's coming that week. And McGee says, well, then they'll get to know each other. Her patience is running thin, thin, thin with him. It is. Well, because he, to my knowledge, still has not apologized for being so disrespectful of her Mm -hmm. in London. Also, I just came up with a great portmanteau for Bricker and McGee. Oh, yeah. Brick G. <laughs> Brick G. That's great. Oh, my God. It's so fantastic. Yes, I'm very excited about this. <laughs> I hope he sticks around just so I can say Brick G. Then McGee sits by Edith and asks why she's so glum. Edith is like, am I? Because I guess if you're glum for like five years at running, then it just sort of seems normal to you. I don't, I also don't, I mean, and this happens again later in the episode. Edith seems to think that she can just stare like pensively into the distance, ignoring all around her, and nobody will think that she's looking glum. Like, that's, that's glumness. Yeah, Edith. if you want to put up a front, you have to work at it. Right. Anyway. Well, and then, like, you are glum. Quit acting surprised. <laughs> yeah. Like, just say, yeah, as well, always. She's such a glummer. <laughs> McGee asks after Marigold, and Edith's like, oh, I haven't seen her in a while. I guess I was getting under Mrs. Pigman's feet. Lord Grantham says, I told you so. What a dick! Yeah. Uh, and he suggests leaving it for a few months. That way, when she comes back, they'll be glad to see her. Doubtful. <laughs> she was like, Papa, nobody's ever been glad to see me. <laughs> Even Michael. <laughs> McGee asks Marion Branson about Pip's corner, but LG like talks over and then like cuts between her and Marion Branson. And her face is just devastating. Yeah. It's just like, dude. Yeah. Why can you not pick up on context clues? Right. Like, did you learn this from your dad? Because I feel like he wasn't like that. <laughs> it's hard to say. I wish the ghost of OG LG would show up and be like, why are you being a dick? I'm a ghost. I just assume all ghosts. And every sentence, <laughs> I'm a ghost, just in case there was any debate. It probably saves some time. Yeah. Some I confusion. mean, I think it would have really expediated things in Hamlet. <laughs> 
Because he wouldn't have spent all that time being like, is that a ghost of my dad? Or am I crazy? Or I mean the first chapter of A Christmas Carol, same way, yeah. That's true. Take a note, ghosts. Yeah. Yeah, be more direct. I assume you can hear me. We've got a lot going on. I assume that at least one person listening to this podcast is listening into it in a haunted house. So (laughs) spread the word. Yeah. Don't let those ghosts push you around. (laughs) So yeah, um, Lord Grantham said that they're going, they want to sell off the whole estate piecemeal. Mary points out that he used to approve of selling off the estate piecemeal when Matthew died. I enjoy hearing her say about when Matthew died so bloodlessly. Right. I'm like, the bitch is back. (laughs) There's like no twinge at all. Cause I'm all about that bitch. About that bitch. Lord Grantham says he was wrong about that, but anyway, they can talk about it tomorrow. Mary says that she can't because she's going to go to a dress show in London. And she's excited about it. Yes. And Lord Grantham's like, oh, it's good to know you've got your priorities straight. What a dick. Also, it's, she's not, like, she's going for a day. Yeah. And also, why do, you're already having the conversation. What's going to be different tomorrow? Oh, well, he's not going to change his mind. Well. So, bear that in mind. Yeah, I don't want to repeat the I phrase. In, look, listen, it's it's now ten twenty five. <laughs> I'm still not completely awake. <laughs> That's right. Uh, in a hall, Baxter hears a pained grunt from behind a door. She yeah. knocks on said door and wants to know who's in there because it sounds like they're passing a kidney stone. Yeah. And Thomas is in there and asks her to go away. She asks if she should get a man to help him. Then Thomas opens the door and says, no man in the house would help him. And then he shoves her away, but not before she sees a bunch of vials and syringes on his table. Yeah. Uh, so clearly Thomas is now doing heroin. Yeah. Which is very exciting. <laughs> yeah. And he's got a point. Uh, what man in the house would help him? That's really? true. Nobody likes him. Yeah. Now that Jimmy Kent's gone. Yeah. Anna would help him. Probably, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. she's just like really a nice person. Yeah. Yeah. She's super nice. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, in Mary's room, Anna's discussing the trip with Mary. Uh, so apparently she is going to be seeing Gilly before the trip home. And Anna says that she's right to do it face to face. But Mary says she's still dreading it. Mm-hmm. It's never fun to break up with somebody. No. Uh, like, it's hard to do, as I No, even, even if like you both kind of know. Yeah. It's still just like, oh, why do we have to talk about this? <laughs> Which is why I historically am just like, bye. <laughs> <laughs> text you never (laughs) uh so sibby and george are being walked downstairs guys yeah spoiler alert sibby is crushing it she is because she runs downstairs and says daddy yeah and i'm like what a cute baby yeah get her out of this house before she grows up all (laughs) fucked up and weird uh so branson says hey uh, to her and to George. Right. And George is like, I can't speak. <laughs> uh, Sibby calls LG Donk again. Yeah. And then the kids head off, which is, ah, look, this might be my favorite scene. Even <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, then, uh, Lord Grantham has run into Carson and he asks if Mrs. Patmore is happy. Carson is like, no, my lord. <laughs> and Lord Grantham is like, what's up with that? And I'm like, mind your business. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Quit being so progressive. <laughs> At the Dower House, Isabel and the Dowager are having tea, and the Dowager says, uh, she backs up your point, mm-hmm. where she says that she should not make Murdy wait. Uh, after all, she had said that the whole idea of marrying him was ridiculous. I don't know, man. Maybe I'm wrong. Cousins, have you ever put off <laughs> refusing a proposal? Have you ever had that happen to you? Well, if so, we want to hear your story. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. It seems I'm fascinating. I'm a very... 
as I just stated, <laughs> breakup. I'm a very like, all right, yes or no, bitches. Right. I got an appointment in 30 minutes. Let's have this figured out. I need to know what's going on. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Well, and two, I'm not a big fan of proposing to people when you aren't sure of their answer. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I was, again, in keeping with our theory that no surprise is a good surprise. That's correct. You know, you and I, before we got engaged, like, we're ve- we were very, yeah. we'd had extensive conversations about A, whether we wanted to get married at all, B, if we wanted to get married to each other, and right. C, like, when should that happen? Yeah, like, it was very, you know. You also left the receipt for the ring on your table, yeah. uh, which is my favorite story about you. <laughs> True enough. But it's not like it would have been a surprise anyway. No. Oh, yeah, listen, I, you know, I... uh read the secret before the secret you know i've been using my powers of attraction for years apparently um, yeah anyway so and i don't think i don't think murdy went into it with that many illusions and it's also a different culture right so it's really so. kind of i don't know it's awkward yeah but uh yeah i don't know but maybe isabel should think about it because i think you know she has really been like no i'm not doing this but mm. i don't even know like for good reasons yeah you know well I, isabel's just all, isabel's very always like against things like sort of reflexively yeah and that you know before she think or you know she's she's very like she makes she makes quick decisions actually about mm, what she, what she likes and what she doesn't like that's or also approves true. of and then it's tough to talk around a widow has got to have a code <laughs> yeah um yeah so anyway you know but it's like I think if she's really, really happy being alone, and she may well be, you know, I mean, she hasn't been ever up until Matthew died. And I'm not saying that it's good that Matthew died Mm -hmm. from her perspective, but you know, a woman doesn't get a lot of opportunity to be alone in this time period. And maybe she's having a good time, you know? Yeah. She's like if uh, Betty White on Golden Girls, like, had her own house. (laughs) Which honestly, what? Don't you think that Betty White's character would have been a lot happier? From everything I can tell. Like, everybody just shits yeah, on Rose say, in that house. It's not like any of them liked her. You know, even Sophia. <laughs> She's like, I hate you. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I'm short and hilarious. <laughs> anyway, Isabel says that when it actually came to it, it did not seem so ridiculous. Because Murdy is one charming motherfucker. I would marry Murdy. Mm. I'd marry him in a second. That's We'd be Curtabelle. Wait a minute. No, we wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't be Curtabelle. That is a horrifying <laughs> thought, actually. No. Uh, you would be Curdy. Curdy or uh, Murdily. <laughs> Mertly. Sorry. All right. You know what? Never mind. I can't hook up with Murdy because our our portmanteau is no good. Yeah. I honestly, really, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you, I don't think I could be in a long-term relationship with somebody with whom I did not have a really solid portmanteau. Fair enough. So thanks a lot, uh, relationships of celebrities in the early aughts, <laughs> for forever ruining me. <laughs> they really have. But I always, I generally like to do it with, uh, with like last names and not first names. Yeah. Which is not the case for celebrities. Yeah, that's true. It's how I differentiate myself as a pauper. <laughs> That's right. It wouldn't be proper. It wouldn't be. You don't want to get... How disrespectful to Kimye. <laughs> ideas above your station. <laughs> I try to never have ideas. <laughs> anyway, the Dowager says, one kind word and your judgment takes flight. And Isabel's like, oh, what about Karagan, though? And the Dowager's like... Mm. Yeah, she's like, oh. Anyway, Isabel says that she said she was going to think about it, and she will. 
Also, I really like the Dowager's tea set. Yeah, I saw it too. But like very cute. Yeah. Because those are mutually exclusive. (laughs) Right. I like the colors. Like the colors were different than you. I would think of her as being more pastel. Yeah. But they're they're more, they're not bold colors, but they're just darker than you think. They're just bold by tea set colors standards. In the library, LG is reading the paper as Edith comes in and says that there is a trial in Munich of the Nazis that killed her baby daddy. And apparently throughout this scene, neither of them has ever heard the phrase National Socialist Party of Germany. Right. Because they keep referring to these guys as thugs. Yeah. And it's like they are, but in light of sort of the year in thuggery we've had in this country (laughs) where people are just describing, oh, like, oh, you're like a young black man, you're a thug. Right. I'm just like, you don't know these people. Maybe they had a legitimate reason to kill your baby daddy. (laughs) But anyway, so... And, you know, Lord Grantham says that he uh, had read about them and, you know, surely we'll be hearing more about this sort of thing because we pushed Germany too hard after the war. And I'm like, you are not smart enough (laughs) to know that that's what's going on. Agreed. You dumb fuck. (laughs) Like, what the fuck is wrong with you, Baron Fellows, that you're turning fucking Lord Grantham into the Nostradamus of World (laughs) War II? Like, get the fuck out of here and take Neem with you. Don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. Yeah. I hate that they put that line in there. I agree. Because, look, there's probably somebody in that house who knows that they forced Germany past a reasonable point for reparations. Yeah. I mean, as you know, I'd like to say maybe it's Branson. But honestly, at this point, it's probably Daisy (laughs) because the homely liberal told her. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Edith says they might finally find out what happened to Gregson. Uh, Gregson. I'm like, what did we used to call that guy? <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, if well, only his ghost would show up. Now, that <laughs> would be useful. Yeah, that's true. But uh, Lord Garantham finally realizes this isn't just a chat about the politics of the day. <laughs> right. And Edith is crying. Yeah. Uh, so we tell Edith that it'll be hard, but it'll be better to know the truth, which is like a true sentiment as far as it goes. Yeah. I'm just not sure. Why does anybody go to him with their problems? <laughs> well, who's Edith going to go to? Uh, Mick G, nah. potentially, although Edith used to be a real cunt to her. Right. So, you know. Nah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't understand the interpersonal, like everybody living in this house to me at this point, it just feels like they're all going through the motions. <laughs> Um, Edith says she hates to let go of the hope that he might still be alive and uh, asks Lord Grantham to keep it to himself and she doesn't want Mary's pity. And then Lord Grantham wipes the tear from her face and says, Mary will pity you and so do I. And I'm like, did you not hear her say <laughs> yeah. she just does not want your pity, dude? Right. Like, why are you the worst? <laughs> yeah. Well, mainly she doesn't want Mary's pity, which is understandable. Look, again, I don't know why Edith doesn't just move to London at this point. Right. Like, she could live with Rosamond if that was an option. I suppose, yeah. You know? But I mean, because I think the issue is that she's never been married and thus can't be allowed. On her own. Yeah. Right. Well, possibly. You know? We're going to have a whole new maid to order. Yeah. Madge can go. Yeah. Edith, Rosamond, Madge. And she could steal that baby back. <laughs> you know? That's right. Listen, the possibilities are endless, Edith. Quit living in this house of sorrow. Well, that's... And I was going to say this in a, in a couple scenes, but I was like, boy, Edith, you know, you've got a lot of time on your hands. You really need to have a hobby. Perhaps you should own a newspaper. Mm. 
It's the you own a farm of this series. That's right. You literally own a newspaper. Yeah. Why are you not doing that? That would seems like a lot of fun. And she's uh anyway. At Rosamond's, Mary is running late for the dress show. Anna says, "Don't worry about it. Everything will be all packed up in ship shape when you get back, or unpacked rather, or packed, whatever." Unpacked. Yeah. Mary gives her a letter to post telling Gilly to meet at Kensington Gardens for lunch because they had not yet apparently arranged where or when they would meet, which seems odd. I feel like Mary is the kind of bitch that wouldn't text you back right away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. And now we're at the dress show. And there's like a lady in sort of like an Egyptian inspired headdress. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the dresses are heinous. (laughs) Yeah, actually. It's true. What is up with the fashion this season? I don't know, man. I just, it's all so awful. I think it's the influence that, like, we're in the last throes of these tubular dresses. Right. And, and they just don't look good on anyone. Yeah. Like, McGee looks like she's wearing really expensive gunny sacks the entire time. <laughs> so, uh, Rosamond, uh, not super tactfully asks after Edith. Yeah. And because Mary's sentiment is clearly, like, I don't know why. <laughs> right. So Mary's like, oh, you know, she's mucking around with this little pig girl. <laughs> and then, uh, Rosamond pretends to act uninterested, but then slips up by knowing both that the child is a girl and the daughter of a farmer. Right. And Mary's like, how did you know that? And Even Rosamond's, I didn't know that. I no. don't pay enough attention. And Rosamond is like, oh, you must have said. And Mary's like, you know, I don't care enough about Edith to even bother questioning this. And Mary's reactions to the stretch show. Oh my God. She's like, Ooh, yummy. And it is a yummy dress. Yeah. Like it is a really amazing dress. Yeah. No. And it's exactly her style. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this white dress with a lot of black embellishment. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, got kind of a V neck. It looks actually very modern. It's almost like a Mm fifties silhouette. And there's a really cute underskirt. That's like asymmetrical. Oh, underlaying the actual skirt um so i i always love that yeah i don't think it's a good look for me but when people can pull it off it's really awesome um uh she's then distracted by the presence of charles blake who's sitting with another woman yeah the plot blakens (laughs) so edith hangs out by the church spying on the piglets uh she's basically doing She's LARPing being John Malkovich at the end right now. She's like, look away. Look away. Yeah. Just sort of uh, creepy and upsetting. Uh, Edith, you know, we want to be on your side, but this is getting ridiculous. They're like, listen, you know, we didn't want you around our children, but then we spotted you spying on them from some bushes. So now we feel much more comfortable. Yeah. Uh, then we see Anna walking down a London street. She asks a doorman if this is the place for Gilly, and he says it is. Some guy getting his shoes shined watches her with interest. And this is all very ominous, and I have no idea why. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, like, we know Mr. Green was Gilly's valid, but, you know, he's gone. Yeah. Maybe she's worried about him being a ghost. <laughs> That's right. Anna, <laughs> I'm the ghost of Green. <laughs> I killed myself to frame you, because that's what always happens, probably. (laughs) Also, I'm now in a relationship with Kesha. (laughs) Because, guys, if you don't know, Kesha, well, with a dollar sign, Kesha, says that she had sex with a ghost. (laughs) And I think that's so great. (laughs) I like to think that when the ghost finished, the ghost was like, I'm a ghost. (laughs) Oh my God. What if you had a ghost baby? (laughs) Like, how does that work? 
Uh, Just the custody arrangements alone. What? <laughs> I'm a ghost baby. <laughs> so the dress show climaxes with a wedding dress because Baron Julian is nothing if not subtle. Yeah. It's actually a pretty cool wedding dress. Yeah, it's fine. And like the woman's walking very slowly down the runway. She's still on the runway and everybody's breaking up and like milling around. Yeah. And I'm like, why? Okay. They're like, yeah, it looks great. We're done. Uh, so Blake gives Mary a significant glance, <laughs> and then he goes over and asks if she's shopping for her trousseau, and introduces Mabel Lane Fox! Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah. The famous Mabel Lane Fox. Yeah. And she is fantastic. She is. I don't like this outfit, but she's very, like, insouciant. She is. She's one of those, like, you know, she's... I don't think she can be because she's the honorable Mabel Lane Fox. Mm-hmm. So she's from the aristocracy. But she reminds me so much of like, you know, these bachelor girls. Right. Who are like out, you know, well, I think doing it for my, themselves. My impression of her was that she was uh, an heiress to new money. Oh, I guess she would be honorable if that were the case. Right. If they had bought their way into the peerage. Yeah, that's what I remember being the case about her. But I could yes, be wrong. potentially. Um, so Charles Blake thought they had... I can't tell if he's faking this or not. Right. But he is like, oh, you know each other. And they're like, no. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're about to, like, have a fucking cat fight right now. <laughs> uh, but he's like, oh, suddenly I remember the significance. <laughs> Uh, and then Mabel Lane Fox immediately is like, don't be an ass. Yeah. And I'm like, I love, she's, she's like, like out marrying Mary. Yeah. She says, try not to be an ass. Yeah. And, uh, Mary says that, you know, oh, oh, we don't know each other. Exactly. And Mabel Lane Fox is like, oh, we know of each other. Yeah. Cause Gilly sucks at a love triangle. <laughs> I really like, no, like, you can tell the other person that you're in a love triangle, but like, try not to be stupid. Well, you know, but Gilly is not. Look, he's been trying not to be stupid for 30 years. It's gotten him nowhere. <laughs> Except Scotland occasionally. <laughs> uh, so Mary starts to say something, but Mabel Lane Fox says, Oh, it's totally okay. And, uh, you know, she doesn't mind. Right. And she doesn't want to be with someone who doesn't want to be with her. Yeah. Which is also a sentiment I very much appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, and Blake kind of surprised, like, oh, are you quite over Gilly? Because I was planning to drive away. There's <laughs> all this stuff that I was going to do. And Maybelline Fox agrees and then says she has to go meet Rafe Carr, which might be the most British name ever <laughs> um, for this time period. Right. And so I'm like, oh, so I guess they're not dating. Yeah. Well, which only makes Blake more attractive for me. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're down to just go to a fashion show with your platonic female friend? Well, I mean, how platonic? And how platonic is she with Rave Carr? And when she's done with Rave Carr, who's she going to tell Rave Carr that she has to go off and meet to keep their interest? I don't know. Look, I'm Maybelline Fox. Uh, I want her to have a spinoff. Yeah. Like, she's so great. Yeah. She's just like, ta! (laughs) So she goes off, and then uh, Blake possibly faux apologizes and says oh i thought you knew each other and then mary is unsettled in a way that we rarely see her yeah she's just saying that miss fox isn't at all what she imagined miss lane fox i think miss lane fox yeah and she thought she'd be meeker and more virtuous yeah uh which i guess I guess Mary thought she was pretty fast, you know, going up to Liverpool and staying in a hotel. And I'm like, yeah, Mabel Lane Fox is getting her pussy eaten in a cab (laughs) by Rafe Carr. Like, game set Fox. Um, 
She then tells Blake that she's in London through the next day and is seeing Tony the following day. She doesn't really let on that she's ditching him right. at this point. I don't right. think. No, right? you're right. You're right. Um, and then Blake says, oh, you know, come out to dinner with me tonight. Uh, and she's like, you know, don't you have plans? And he says, oh, none I want to honor. And I'm like, oh, he's going to rearrange his schedule for you, bitch. <laughs> ah! I'm yeah. so team Blake. Yeah. Like, listen. And there's a lot of gilly lovers out there. Right. And I look, I get your point. I understand why you would want to be with a man who is not your intellectual equal. Right. It can be fun, but you don't want to marry that guy. Yeah. You absolutely don't want to marry that guy. I mean, I think, you know, if you think Gilly is better looking than Blake, I think you've got a case to make. I think that you do have a case to make. But going back again to my busted face rule. Right. No, but I mean, like, also just like, uh, you know, guys with a busted face have had to work harder in life. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Also, uh, never hired a rapist. Well, so like I realized that Gilly like didn't like know about yeah. that, but also like, did you really check his references to? <laughs> anyway, Mary says she'll go to dinner with Charles Blake, but no, but too swanky. I don't have the clothes, and then boom, Mary's out. Yeah, listen. I have not been this excited. Like, this is an infinitely better love. Well, it's a quadrangle, right. which is always a lot more interesting. Yeah. As anybody who watched or read Twilight knows, when they finally introduced <laughs> Leah into the picture. Anyway, those who know will know. Um, no, but I mean, this is just so much more interesting. I yeah. guess it was a quadrangle with Mary and Matthew and Lavinia and Sir Richard Carlyle. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, this is way more interesting since it doesn't seem like anyone in this situation is an abuser. Right. Uh, or wearing the St. Patrick's Day Massacre dress. <laughs> Or, you know, sickly. Yeah. And this brings us to our first recurring segment, Fashion Backwards, with our very own runway raconteur, Kelly. Thank you, Tom. All right, so I thought I'd look into the history of the fashion show, thinking that it surely must stretch back centuries. (laughs) Uh, But no, I was wrong. Yeah. It's a very new conceit, actually. Um, I found this sort of timeline that lists 1391 as the year Queen Isabella of Bavaria gave a life-size doll to Queen Anne of Bohemia. Uh, A life-size doll in the year 1391. Like, (laughs) where is the conjuring about that? (laughs) That would be horrible horrendously terrifying yeah just like the way people were depicted in art in those years i know i'm just like ah! <laughs> uh anyway but you know basically she gave her a mannequin right uh although they were later called model dolls and they became very popular gifts amongst the aristocracy and you know they gave them to their designers mm-hmm. to use and then i know that you know sort of as time evolved those dolls got smaller and they would do like these little mocks of dresses on these dolls so that you know you could take you know, it's the same as like taking a photograph to a, a hairstylist. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but apparently the sort of the first actual fashion show was in Paris and it was a night, it was in 1848 and Charles Frederick Worth paid a shop girl named Marie Vernet to demonstrate how shawls should be worn. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't, I'm, like, it's 1848. <laughs> like shawls have been around for a hot minute. Yeah. Also, it's like how, you, they rest on like it's was not that a, knowledge lost revolution <laughs> somehow complicated. Like, i don't know yeah uh so vernet was the first model and uh also later married that guy so yeah, well, uh weird yeah then uh kind of like i heard huckabees in 1885, there was an illustrated book called Art et la Mode depicting four women modeling fashion so that was more of a lookbook mm-hmm. than an actual show right obviously. right 
Um, and then in the late 1800s, couturiers started offering fashion parades in their salons. Mm. And this is really interesting because fashion designers were and are, continue to be very concerned about their copyright, um, mm. whether they called it that or not. Right. And there's actually an organization in Paris that's basically like the secret cabal of <laughs> hot couture yeah. that basically – you know, they, if they find out you've been pirating designs, they like call you in and like shame you or something. <laughs> right. Um, probably they fine you actually. <laughs> <laughs> so the couturiers did not have public showings and oftentimes like it puts into context, um, Mitchie kind of talking about like Lucille and all these couturiers. So they only had access to these couturiers because they had been like referred Mm. and they had a reputation and it was like, you know, we're not spies for these pirates who are going to go in and trade on our reputation as members of the aristocracy to rip off your designs. Yeah. So the fact that McGee has access to Lucille at the time of Downton Abbey is pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, but they would sometimes have these private shows, but those were not for the public. Those were generally for buyers of fashion. Right. So they would come in, they would take a look and, and see what they liked and put in their orders. Yeah. Well, and even that's how um, they did it at Selfridges. I mean, obviously that was later in a different context, yeah, yeah, but they yeah. would do that for, uh, what's her name? Lady May. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I'm so excited about Mr. Selfridge. Actually, as I was reading all of this, all I could think of was how was exciting I was about Mr. Selfridge. Yeah. Um, so in 1903, we have the first fashion show in New York, uh, by the Eric Brothers store. Mm-hmm. And that was actually for customers. Okay. So I feel like the concept of these fashion parades for customers, I mean, it originated in Paris, but there's this sort of weird triangle of, you know, you've got London, you've got New York, and you've got Paris. Mm-hmm. And particularly after, I believe, World War One, there's a huge spike in competition between Paris and New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's World War One. I'll double check. Um, so there are sort of from 1908 to 1910, uh, like Wanamaker's in New York does these regular shows of French couture. And they have one in 1908 that's based on a Napoleon Josephine theme <laughs> with child pages in costume. And I'm like, weird. Yeah. Very weird. And then in the 20s, fashion shows become much more common for the general public. And usually there's a theme like Russian design, Chinese design, Persian design. Mm-hmm. It looks like the one, this one that Mary was at had a bit of an Egyptian theme. Right. But I mean, we don't, we didn't see that much. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, and then kind of jumping forward, uh, in 1943, because the Germans were occupying France, there's a PR agent named Eleanor Lambert who organized Press Week, which is a very early precursor to Fashion Week. Okay. Um, so it was a way to give the press access to American designs. And so, I mean, it's just been this sort of ongoing thing between America and France. And right. America really capitalized on World War II. Yeah. To be like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I mean, in a variety of ways. Really, yeah. they did. So press week, press week continued until like the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, basically that was at the, at that point, American couture had fully arrived. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find that much information on the evolution of British couture. And I honestly think it's because most of the designers that were working in London were people from France. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, which isn't there are obviously British designers, especially now, but Britain didn't have Fashion Week proper until like the late eighties, mm. and um, 
I mean, it also, you know, first started in America, sort of in the 80s, because, like, up until that point, people were showing in department stores, mm-hmm. and it was all very tied to the commerce, and then it starts to become more of, like, this art form. And, you know, and it was the 80s. It was all very Andy Warhol, and they were showing in lofts and clubs and yeah. things like that. But there were all these problems because they would be you know this is 1980s new york nothing's up to code (laughs) and they're just like oh you know my coke dealer has this loft that he uses (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) two great flavors that go better together (laughs) um so there was one instance where in 1990 there was this michael kors show and the sound, the thumping bass of the house music caused the plaster in the ceiling to just collapse. Uh, and then another show, uh, the, the equipment caused the generator for the building to blow. Yeah. So at that point, um, Fern Malice, who was on the Council of Fashion Designers of America, which I assume is the same as the thing. And right. whenever I think about this, all I can think about is that, like, uh, that, trio in american horror story coven with that like truman oh, Capote yeah. dude <laughs> and francis uh what's her name per- perkins no why McCon- do conroy it's, yeah francis conroy okay. and then uh that other lady yeah that uh, yeah she was but awesome. uh i just think of them just like flouncing around and being like deny <laughs> so she starts fashion week um as a result of mm-hmm. this happening she's like this is not okay yeah all of us there's an actual quote somewhere where it's like you know uh we love fashion but we don't want to die for it <laughs> right no, honestly that just because these are the only two incidences that i saw yeah and i'm like that doesn't i i, I don't know how heavy was that plaster i right. don't know well yeah but i think it's more along the lines of let's maybe stop this before somebody you know yeah. burns down new york yeah. So that's the the basic evolution of Fashion Week, and then um, it kind of I feel like the American one kind of inspired the London, Milan, and Paris mm. Fashion Weeks as mm-hmm. well. There is a book about the history of fashion shows called The Mechanical Smile by Caroline F- by Caroline Evans. Mm. Uh, it was put out by Yale, so I don't think it's probably super easy to get. Yeah. Um, but I, the, one of the first things I found when I was researching this is this Slate article that's like, nobody's ever written a book about fashion shows. And it took uh, like three or four years for somebody <laughs> to actually do that. Yeah. So we know the sort of basic shape of that. And then models were not uh, respected at all. Well, uh, shocker. Yeah. And I mean, most of them were sleeping with the designers because mm-hmm. they had to be like kept women essentially. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no, in nowhere, nowhere in my research is it like, oh yeah, they were basically like prostitutes, but it's heavily implied. Yeah. They're at least in the same category as actresses, right. you know, in terms right. of their scandalousness. Mm-hmm. And, um, Fashion shows are a lot shorter now. They could sometimes last a week. And they would also, you know, they were much more theatrical. You'd have these like elaborate tableaus. Right, and right. And you would have, you know, narration happening and, you know, it would all be Mrs. Page Henderson boys presents in costume and stuff. And yeah, ridiculous, yeah. ridiculous stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Caroline Evans says something really interesting about, you know, we talk a lot, I mean, even especially today about sort of the idea of like fashion being presented for the male gaze and like all these runway shows kind of catering to the male gaze and she's like i think that's actually been overblown Mm -hmm. because if you look at the early history i mean it's all these like dumpy women in their 50s just looking at the the shape of things and how it's cut yeah 
you know, whether that's going to sell. And I think that's true. I mean, I think where the male gaze comes into it is more so, you know, eventually, you know, eventually you have to market these things to people. And that's where, right. And it's not even that men give a shit yeah. about models. Yeah. It's that, you know, women want to look at these models and be like, oh, like that would be sexy to men. So mm-hmm. it's this weird sort of, you know, cycle. Yeah. Women being like, oh, men would like that. And men being like, I, li- you, you could look like a foot. I don't <laughs> um, <laughs> and the, uh, the walk, the model walk evolved. It basically changed with the style at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the elimination of, of corsets and, and legs being allowed to be visible changed a lot of things. I also learned if you had your hands in your pockets in the 18th century, it was considered to be very vulgar and sexual, <laughs> uh, which I guess makes a certain amount of sense. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then in the 19th century, it was something only working class people did. Mm. But then by the 20th century, especially sort of as pants for women are being popularized, it becomes very chic. Mm. And, you know, I found that really fascinating. Yeah. That just because you do think of like the walk and the catwalks themselves, they were created and they're kind of a throwback to this era that we're uh-huh. in right now because sometimes these fashion shows would have thousands of people. Mm. So they had to create these long walkways just so that everybody could see yeah, and, yeah. and elevate them up on these platforms. Yeah, and I mean that's pretty much it. It's okay. it's it's shockingly thin. Yeah, I I really did think there was gonna be a lot more information on it. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, and we have one book now, so maybe there'll be additional books. Maybe so. And I guess it makes sense to an extent because I was thinking, I don't know why, I was like thinking of ancient Egypt, and maybe just because of this fashion show. Mm. But it was like, oh, you know, surely like they would have like walked like an Egyptian and like had a fashion <laughs> show, but. Fashion shows are actually a very like middle class concept. They are. Well, and it's also partly just because I think, you know, well, I don't know how, I mean, just the clothes were so individually tailored and a hassle and expensive and all this sort of thing. Exactly. I mean, and you were, you know, the idea of even having a buyer Mm -hmm. indicates that there is this middle class and you're not just going to the couturier yourself. Right, right. And being like, make me this crazy pantsuit. Rest in peace, Sybil. <laughs> um, yeah, so that is our fashion backwards for the week. Okay, well, thanks. You're welcome. So we're going to pause and get a little meta <laughs> here. Right. Uh, just FYI, we are now recording at 11.15 <laughs> the following day. Yes. So, like, this is a whole, you know, um, postmodern right. book, and we're jumping around in time, except <laughs> only moving forward. Right. Linearly. Yeah. We're not unstuck in time, per se. Yeah. But, yeah. It's, we've, we've moved. There's a discontinuity. Other things have happened <laughs> between the last thing that we said and currently now yeah. when we're speaking, and even still more now when you are listening to this. <laughs> right. So, I hope your minds are blown. Right. Yeah. Uh, we just felt this was worth mentioning because I was out until three in the morning last night and I might sound like I was out till three in the morning. Right. And, uh, just if our energy is different, man, yeah. or like whatever. Like our vibes and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> it's still a weekend morning. We're still, uh, all caffeinated. So. Yeah. Yeah. Be, uh... I could be more caffeinated, honestly. Oh, well. I think I was definitely more caffeinated yesterday. Well, it's too late now. I know. Let's just, let's do this. All let's right. figure this out. Let's move on 
Uh, so we see Anna walking through London again to uh, Piccadilly Circus, in fact, followed by Shoeshine Guy. Piccadilly Circus is always so disappointing to me. <laughs> it sounds like it's going to be awesome. And right. then it's just like, what, this place? Yeah. Boo. Unimpressed. They would never name something a circus in America if it wasn't a legit circus. That's true. We've got our pride. Yeah. Have you ever been to Circus Circus <laughs> in Las Vegas? Yeah. Definitely a center of American pride. <laughs> What, Vegas or Circus Circus specifically? Uh, I mean, both, okay. yeah. Uh, and we also see that Edith has continued stalking the piglets all the way back to their house, thus rendering her ever more disturbing. Like, yeah, they're really going to let you back into their lives when you're just like, <laughs> I think, I'm always around! I think I might try knocking on their bedroom window late at night. Hello. <laughs> Just thought I'd pop in and see how Marigold's getting on. <laughs> May I stare at her sleeping? <laughs> I feel like at that point, Mrs. Pigman is like, Tim, you're getting me a gun. <laughs> so in the kitchen, Carson tells Mrs. Patmore that she's to go see Lord Grantham in the library. And then uh, she's freaking out, like taking off her apron, and like th- you know, this is very unusual. Right. Uh, it's Miss Mrs. Patmore's day out, I guess. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Hughes is like, "No, you look fine." And then Carson asks Molesley to look over the dinner table since he's first footman. Yeah. And this is wearing thin. Yes. This shtick. Remarkably, it is so. really not fun. Molesley just splutters, and then Mrs. Hughes asks him to also check all the guest rooms, and then even Daisy makes I fun know. of him. Daisy's like, "You wanted to be first no, that's Kelly McDonald in Gosford Park. Well, <laughs> as much as we all love that, yeah. Like, you wanted to be first footman. I can't. Sorry, no, guys. It's, it's, I've always struggled. This is like Kelly's cavalcade of terrible <laughs> impressions. Like, none of the impressions I'm good at are coming up. Well, hang in there. I failed us all. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, Edith... Frustrated that her stalking has not been discovered, knocked on the door of Pig Farm because she is a giant idiot. Why is she doing this? <laughs> I don't know. Like, even Lord Grantham was like, yeah, you better give it a couple months, dude. Yeah. That, and she was no, like, and the way no, to interpret that was not, oh, this afternoon? Great, I'll go over there right now. Right. She was like, months? I've been planning to wait for 30, 45 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> that should be enough time, I would think. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and tells Mrs. Pigman that, indeed, she just thought she'd pop in. And Mrs. Pigman is like, screw you, you crazy rich lady, mm-hmm. uh, in almost <laughs> those words, <laughs> as, you know, as respectfully as well, she can. Well, you crazy rich m'lady. Right. <laughs> because, you know, propriety. Yes. She observes all the forms, but is like, you can't see my child, you monster. Yeah. Uh, so Edith heads out, and then Pigman c- comes after her. And he says that it's just that his wife thinks that she's unsettling the child, and Edith doesn't say anything and just walks off all sad. Yeah, and I'd also like to point out that Marigold doesn't seem intelligent enough to pick up on anything that's going on here. I'm not saying it's not having long-lasting traumatic, you know, effects on her, but I think it's really unsettling Mrs. Pigman. Yeah. Which presumably would then, you know, through transference, affect Marigold. Well, it's probably true. And if it's upsetting Mrs. Pigman, that's also a perfectly legitimate reason. Yeah, I'm upset on her behalf. Yeah. Don't mess with Mrs. Pigman. Right. Up in the library, which seems to be the only place anyone ever hangs out. Yeah. I feel like the people at Highclere Castle were like, you can't be in our house anymore. (laughs) They're like, well, what about... What about just a library? And they were like, no. And they're like, what about what about just a small library? And they were like, you can stand a library. <laughs> so 
So up there, Lord Grantham tells Mrs. Patmore that there are all these laws governing war memorials, and that is why Archie cannot be included on any war memorial. Again, why in this... Like, who cares? Like, uh, this village? Like... Right. Uh, anyway. Yes. He says he appreciates her distress. She thanks him because Carson doesn't. And Carson's like, yeah, I fucking give a shit about this kid that got shot. Then Mrs. Patmore says that Archie, you know, volunteered and his so-called cowardice was like a battle wound to his brain. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, PTSD. Yeah. And then Lord Grantham says that he agrees with her, but he can't do anything about it because these are all like really like absurd (laughs) <laughs> opinions for all of these people in this one geographic location to have right uh but mrs patmore says it's helpful to see that decent folk can see our archie was a victim even if mr carson can't <laughs> boom yeah go abuse molesley some more i guess yeah you no. dick but that was like yeah that was about as harshly yeah. as anybody's ever Sweet spoken burn. to Carson. Yeah. You know, Mrs. Patmore knows how to burn things. That, yes. She's made some creme brulees. She has. Remember when they had to have that, uh, when, uh, it was when Mackell was there, right? And she like burned all the dinner and she was like, well, we'll just have a party. And yeah. Did she burn all the dinner? Yeah. Cause it was, there was some problem with the stove. Maybe she didn't burn it or just the stove the broke. The stove wasn't working. Yeah. And then Mackell was like, put out some cold cuts. We're gonna, you know, do the Charleston. <laughs> Um, at any rate, Mrs. Patmore leaves and then Lord Grantham dismisses Carson and McGee walks in and Lord Grantham asks when Shrimpy and your ghastly art dealer are arriving. He keeps like yeah. <laughs> laying it on even thicker. Right. Bricker wise. The longer he goes without having met him, the more hideous. Well, he's or, met him. Or, or, uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. The more hideous his description. Like, I just imagine in his mind, he's just <laughs> defaulting into this, like, zombie with, like, dripping limbs. Yeah. Um, and so Mc- inappropriate attire. Yeah. And McGee composes herself and says that the car has gone to meet Shrimpy and Mr. Bricker. And she, uh, manages not to kick Lord Grantham <laughs> in the balls as she says that Bricker is a historian, not a, not a dealer. And Lord Grantham is like, whatever like right no and it's like she knows the facts of this that is a simple statement of a true fact no yeah but i think this still goes on because i was talking to a friend yesterday oh my god try to figure out what that means cousins (laughs) i was a friend yesterday and she like overheard these people talking in this uh mexican restaurant and they were like the guy was like you know where we should go for tacos mexico (laughs) and we got to find out when de los muertos is and his like woman was like oh i'm pretty sure it's in the fall he's like nah it's definitely in the spring (laughs) and then she's like oh like she agreed with him so at least mcgee is not like you know recalibrating her entire worldview (laughs) as lord grantham tries to destroy her he was like no there's only one mexican holiday it's cinco of the dead it happens in the spring oh my god I didn't even think of that. Yeah, that is that's totally what that absolutely. guy Absolutely. What a monster. <laughs> okay, so Lord Grantham wonders why Bricker is coming, and then McGee once again explains that he wants to discuss the painting. And Lord Grantham says, with you? McGee asks if that's shocking, and Lord Grantham pointedly dodges the question. Yeah. She should be filing for divorce right now. Yeah. It's uh, unacceptable. Yeah. So downstairs, Molesley is carrying a comically large number of boots around, <laughs> and then 
Carson asks him to see to Bricker and Shrimpy if they don't have valets, and we play the whole First Footman game again. First Footman is becoming, quickly, the murder prison of this episode. Yeah. Which has really been pretty blissfully uh, murder prison-free overall. Relatively speaking, but, like, it's not that bad. Apart from some ominous music and Piccadilly Circus. (laughs) Yeah. This is the most depressing circus I've ever been to. (laughs) A man died here? Why did you bring me here? (laughs) Mary and Blake are having dinner. Team Blake. Yeah. Uh, Blake is hot, and he also <laughs> says that he's happy with his life. Mary's glad that he's happy. Blake is sorry if Mary is offended that he is not, you know, dead of a broken heart. <laughs> right. Uh, Mary does not really comment because she's clearly very sad about that. Yes. Um, but she says she you only... You weren't supposed to move on. Yeah, right? Come <laughs> on, dude. Get with the program. <laughs> Mary says she only hopes that Gilly feels the same way. And Blake is like visibly he he like flinches. He's yeah. like, wait a minute. Uh-huh. There is a, a great disturbance in the force. I thought we were but you're saying now that I could <laughs> <laughs> That that yeah. Uh anyway, he says that he does not understand Mary and wishes that he could work her out. And uh she says she wishes she could work herself out, which I think is disingenuous. I think Mary's got herself worked out pretty well. I think so, too. I think there may be a veneer of her, like, being, like, deluded about what she's doing. Right. I Yeah, I mean, I think there's – she's deceiving herself in some way. Yeah. That I can't quite identify. Uh, she always reminds me of, in the Simpsons episode with the country club, Robert Ta, <laughs> who says, I hope she didn't take my attempt to destroy her too seriously. <laughs> At any rate, she explains that she's going to tell Tony tomorrow by uh, the... <laughs> The statue of Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens. And Blake's like, that is cold. He's like, you're going to take him to a family destination and be like, remember how we thought we were going to have kids? Nope. Bye. But Mary says Gilly's done nothing wrong and that she wants him to be godfather to her children, but not their father. And I'm like, why do you even want to have more kids, you weirdo? You don't even like the one you have. (laughs) And he's the one who's going to get all the money. A very good point. At any rate, Blake asks how Gilly will take it. Mary says, not as well as you, which is another point in Blake's favor. Because that dude can roll with the punches. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, you don't want to hit this anymore? Even after you made eggs and we rolled around in that mud? All right, bitch. I'm going (laughs) to hang out with Maybelline Fox. See how you like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Blake then suggests that Mary could soften the blow. Mary says she doesn't see how. Blake says, don't you? With like this very suggestive eyebrow raise. Yeah. Is he suggesting that she perform oral sex on him in front of that Peter Pan? <laughs> no. She, he's saying that it would be soften the blow if she was dumping him for Blake rather than just oh, dumping him all together. Well, listen, Blake. I'm going to ding you for three points <laughs> because what? Be more explicit. Oh, uh, look, you got it, I guess. I got Whatever. it. Whatever. No, I, that's fine. I thought it was a very... I literally wrote in my notes, I don't understand what he's saying. Why is <laughs> soften which blow? Are they boxing? <laughs> Tonight, one night only, Charles Blake and Mary Crawley, Foxy Boxing. <laughs> I mean- <laughs> Officiated by Mabel Lane Fox. <laughs> On the spit bucket, Gilly. Listen, this is fun. This is fun. <laughs> No, well, I mean, it also seemed to me that Mary did not understand what his point was either. So, you know, he could have been. Well, more she explicit. can't even work herself out. <laughs> well, that's true. I don't see how she's supposed to figure it out with Blake. Yeah. Uh, at Downton, 
It's uh, like after dinner or before dinner or sometime. And the Dowager tells Edith that she looks subdued and that she must learn to leave things behind. Edith says that she supposes that she must mean leaving Michael behind since she's already made her feelings regarding Marigold clear, mm-hmm. which she has. Uh, the Dowager says that she would never suggest anything that wasn't in Edith's interests. And Edith is like, oh, my interests are the family's interests. And the Dowager says that to her, they are the same. And Edith says, well, that's what makes us different and walks away. Uh, does she walk away to run her newspaper that she owns? Right. I'm like, no, she doesn't. She's, it's like, how's the Dowager's life working out versus yours, Edith? Maybe. Like, she's got this old Russian dude, like, banging down the door <laughs> you know like she didn't even want that right you know i mean she's keeping her shit together but it's like you know yeah her life greater than sign your life Edith. all you do is go stare at a baby that you already <laughs> stole once <laughs> i remember the first time i stole that baby from a loving family you'd think it would get easier <laughs> So Edith goes off to glum it up somewhere else in the room, and Shrimpy takes her seat uh, and tells the Dowager that he has been thinking about Princess Karagan. Uh, he says that the exiles have scattered all over the four corners of the earth and asks who this woman is, if she's an old friend, and the Dowager says that she is the wife of an old friend. And then Shrimpy says that he has to warn her about something, and she says, I can guess what. Shrimpy says that she won't approve, and she may side with Susan, who is, after all, her actual her. blood relative. Exactly. And the Dowager says that she thinks that he is making a mistake, but that she never takes sides in a broken marriage, because no matter how honest anyone tries to be, no one is ever in possession of the facts. That's true. Yeah. And I think that's true even for the people involved. Yeah. yeah. Oftentimes. No, I think that's that's a very good philosophy. People sure get awfully hung up about that stuff. Yeah. If we ever have a divorce, instead of like dividing up our possessions, let's just play Candyland. <laughs> Uh, all right. Whoever gets to Queen Frostine first wins. I know that's an unconventional way of playing that game. That's, that's, <laughs> it's my feminist reinterpretation of Candyland. <laughs> Across the room, McGee asks if Bricker is in a hurry to leave, and he says he actually would like to stay for an extra day, just as Lord Grantham comes up to say, get out of here. <laughs> McGee says he's staying for a couple of days, and Lord Grantham says, well, I hope we've got enough ear to amuse you. Well, it's a good thing they've got that radio, then. Yeah, yeah, which they never <laughs> listen to. I know. You weirdos. <laughs> Lord Grantham asks Shrimpy to go to the library, because it's the only place they have clearance to film other than the drawing room. <laughs> Isabel stands around with Edith and Branson and tells Branson to invite the homely liberal to dinner. What? Why is his family addicted to the homely liberal? I, I don't understand this. I don't understand. Every it. time she comes, something terrible happens. Right. But uh, maybe they feel like, you know, it's terrible for everyone, but it's worse for LG. And, you know, they They're appreciate. They're on like a secret smear campaign. <laughs> well, they just like seeing him upset, or apparently. Anyway, Edith is skeptical, rightly, about this idea as McGee and Bricker walk up. But McGee thinks it sounds like a great idea. For that very reason. Well, fantastic. Yeah. Good for you, McGee. In the library, Shrimpy says that Bombay is great. He <laughs> loves it. Yeah. Mucking around with his white man's burdens. Gateway to the east. And uh, Lord Grantham brings up Susan. And then Shrimpy says that he's glad Rose has been kept out of this whole situation. And yes, they are getting divorced. Lord Grantham is like, is it worth it, old chap? <laughs> and Shrimpy's like, dude, the fact that you are even asking me that told me you have literally never been as unhappy as I am. Yeah. 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 
He's like, you have met Susan. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's the Debbie Downer of Downton. (laughs) Downstairs, Thomas asks Baxter if Mosley's gone to bed because Patmore needs some chafing dishes or whatever. And he points out, he's like, oh, you're not so pally with Mosley anymore. It's like, well, well, ever since he became first footman, <laughs> who has time to pal around? <laughs> he has, the, you know, he's got this giant target on his back, apparently. <laughs> like, Baxter wants to stay clear. She starts getting called, you know, first maid or something. Uh, Baxter says that Thomas's father was never ill, and she thinks that Thomas is ill and is treating himself. And Thomas is like, uh, none of your beeswax, lady. And I agree. Let's never talk about this again. <laughs> Shrimpy sits with Rose in the library and hopes that she sees why he and Susan have to divorce. And Rose asks where he's planning to live and he's not sure. Rose asks if she can live with him, but Shrimpy thinks it's best that she stay in Downton as the divorce could get ugly. And also they need a young pretty person to be <laughs> in this cast. <laughs> Rose says she's learning a lot from her parents' relationship and she's not going to be bullied into an acceptable marriage like her father was. And she right. says she will only marry for love and asks if Shrimpy will support that. Shrimpy says that she's asking for a blank check and he's like, you know, honestly, I fucked it up so bad. Do whatever you want. Yeah. And she's like, well, luckily, Papa, I'm very boring. I have a very small circle of friends. <laughs> True. But uh, I like the scene. It is a really good scene. I wish we got more shrimpy. Yeah. I miss his beard, though. Yeah, I know. Me too. It was a pretty sweet beard. Yeah. It was like Connery-esque. Yeah. No, it was. I remember it well. <laughs> I remember it well. Beards I have known. <laughs> so the next day, McGee and Bricker are in the room with Adela Francesca as Bricker is reading a letter that was written to whichever Earl that was advising him how to it get out of- It was the second Earl. Thank you. Uh, how to get out of France, you know, with all his body parts intact. <laughs> Bricker is glad that the Earl ignored the letter's advice to ditch his collection if he needed to. And McGee says that he brought crates and crates and he went back after the reign of terror to get more crates. Uh, listen, this dude likes to live on the edge. <laughs> yeah. He was like, hey, Robespierre, can I have some of this art you got lying around? And Robespierre was like, listen, I'm really busy <laughs> being a dick. Yeah. So do whatever you want. And he did. Yeah. Uh, Bricker says that Downton is a beautiful uh, place for these this art to be. Uh, he thinks that everything is about Downton is beautiful, including its mistress. And McGee says, oh, you mustn't say such things. Bricker says, I have to say such things or I'll burst. Just as Lord Grantham comes in and his reaction. <laughs> I had... I had to, t- like, show Kelly the screenshot of Bricker's, like, maniacal laugh. Like, ha, 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 I wasn't just complimenting your wife. Oh, man. Yeah, what's burst? Your bubble, Bricker. <laughs> yes. LG's here to ruin your life. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I was, I was uh, talking about a liverwurst. It's very good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he... he Bricker makes some excuse, and McGee says that it's good to show the painting to someone who's so appreciative, and Lord Grantham has figured out what Bricker is appreciative of at this point. Yeah. You can only fool him, like, three or four times. (laughs) (laughs) Well, seven or eight if it involves money. (laughs) By the Peter Pan statue in Kensington Gardens, Gilly can't believe his ears, but Mary assures him it is true, and Gilly says that it's insane, he won't allow it, they love each other, or at least Mary said that she did, Uh, and Mary says she thought she meant it, which is a totally... Like, legitimate excuse. Yeah. People do that all the time. It's They're like, true. I love you. Whoops. <laughs> Listen, about that. Yeah. Um, 
So Gilly wants to know what's changed, and Mary can't explain. Gilly wants to know if little Gilly is the problem. <laughs> Mary says that it isn't. Right. But I think she's too much. This is one of the ways that she is deceiving herself. I think mm-hmm. she really enjoyed sex, but she was not raised to be the kind of woman who does enjoy sex. Mm. Because obviously it's very American and vulgar. Right, right. And she was trying to distance herself from that. Yeah. Anyway, so we think probably uh, Gilly's uh, little Gilly is not <laughs> up to up to par. Yeah. Or, you know. Just in general. I mean, look, I mean, the man is boring. Oh, he's if, super boring. He's going to be boring in bed. So she says, you know, she feels like she's woken up for a dream and she's not sure they have enough in common. And he's like, so you go to bed with me and then you wake up from a dream. And she's like, yes, that is exactly what I just said. <laughs> and it was a metaphor. Right. Why are we arguing over this part? <laughs> so Gilly refuses to accept that she's breaking up with him. Yeah. And he says that they will get through this together. He walks off and is like, are you coming? And she's like, fuck. Yeah. And goes with him. And I have a question about Gilly. I'm like, obviously, he's not a virgin. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I'm like, how many people have you actually had sex with? No. Like. It's a fair question. Um, I feel like Charles Blake has had sex with like a lot of people. I I mean, I think you're probably right. I think he's really, uh, he's really sampled the best of (laughs) Britain's uh, people. The best of Britain's people. A new series on the BBC. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize I was one of Britain's best people. And then this camera crew showed up. And now we're just going to have dinner. (laughs) Fascinating. (laughs) Toad in the hole. (laughs) The best people in Britain are just like us. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. This next scene with Carson. Right. So in the Carson cave, he's decanting some wine using this, like, intricate mechanism. It looks like it's from the Middle Ages. It does. Like, is this some antique that you picked? He's like so intent on it. I know. He's like, if I decant just the right vintage, just the right amount, we'll go back to before the war. (laughs) It looks like a Rube Goldberg machine. And I'm like, why can't you just hold it with your hands? <laughs> oh my god! I laughed out loud at least seven times in this episode, and this was the biggest laugh that there was. Oh no, he looks like the dad in Honey I Shrunk the Kids. He does. <laughs> Doctor Zelinsky. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Sounds right. So anyway, Mosley comes in and says that on further reflection, he's not sure he should be called the first footman anymore. And Carson, you know, he's focusing on his potion mainly and kind of ignoring Mosley. But he's like, fine, I'll see what I can do. Well, then Mosley leaves and Carson smiles because apparently this was his plan the whole time. And I'm like, (laughs) what happened? What changed? He's still the only footman. Why is everyone so crazy? I know. Maybe Carson's like, he's, (laughs) Carson's like making up a poison to poison Mosley with. I don't know. Soon my trials will be over. Wouldn't that be better for Molesley, too? <laughs> well, how long is he supposed to go on like this? Uh, Branson and the homely liberal walk through the front hall, and she is flattered to be invited back. And I'm like, you should be shocked, and also you should not have come. Yeah. 
Branson asks her to try and be nice, and he knows she doesn't like any of them, but they're really good to him, and he loves them. And I'm like, I'm not sure which of these relationships is more abusive. Right. Like your relationship with the Grantham family or your relationship with this horrible woman. Yeah. Anyway, the homely liberal says she doesn't want him to hate them, uh, just to be more than a retainer, propping up a dying system. And I'm like, why do you give a shit about this guy? Yeah. Go teach the children. Like The children are the future. Yeah, why do you give a shit about him? You didn't see him in the first couple seasons. Right? Like, that was when he was worthwhile. <laughs> no, why don't you start trying to indoctrinate his daughter? That yeah. would really, you know, put a spoke in everybody's wheel. That it would. So, uh, Branson says the system's not gonna die before dinner. <laughs> and they head on in, cause yeah. he is is a chode. <laughs> Hughes found a magazine in the hall downstairs. Anna says she saw Thomas reading it, so Hughes asks Baxter to give it to him when she sees him. Uh, Baxter sees it, and it kind of falls open to that choose-your-own-path ad, which I paused to see if I could make out any of the text, but sadly I could not. Aww. I know. You uh, didn't say VCR. <laughs> Zoom in on choose-your-own-path. <laughs> should have. Yeah, you should have. Anyway, Thomas grabs it from her, uh, you know, angrily, and accuses her of having been in his room, and Baxter's like, oh no, Mrs. Hughes found it, and he's like, yeah, and Miss Baxter read it. And she says that she is sorry for what Thomas has gone through, if it's what she thinks it is, and Thomas says not to pity him, he doesn't want anybody's pity. Maybe he wouldn't be so cranky all the time if he accepted some pity here and there. Possibly. Is my thought. At dinner, McGee asks if Bricker brought the photographs of the other Della Francesca, and he says he did, and they can compare them tomorrow. And McGee says it would be lovely if they turn out to be related. Yeah. And the Dowager Countess is giving them the stink eye because, unlike her son, <laughs> she knows what's happening very quickly. Yeah. Lord Grantham tells the Dowager Countess that uh, Bricker flatters McGee by asking her opinion and then the dowager asks if lord grantham ever asks her opinion which is a very astute and trenchant question mm -hmm. and he says sometimes right not in a convincing way at all no shrimpy asks if mary had a good time in london and she says that she set herself a difficult task and it's a relief to be done the dowager countess has moved the stink eye on mary <laughs> now also mary that task is not done. No. Like, I understand that just telling him is a hurdle in and of itself, but right. like, you need to cut that bitch loose. Yeah. He's crazy. Yeah. He's crazy and stupid. <laughs> and That's, that is a very yeah. dangerous combination. Yeah, for sure. Isabel asks the homely liberal how her lessons are going. Oh, God. Yeah. No, oh, this Jesus. is awful. Okay. So, Lord Grantham's like, whoa. And Edith explains about Daisy's maths. Uh, the homely liberal says, that Lord Grantham doesn't approve in a very accusatory way. Right. And Lord Grantham says he just doesn't want her unsettled. And then the homely little was like, oh, you don't even know her name. And Branson gets very annoyed. Mary demonstrates that she knows Daisy's name and she's basically in charge now. So could you kindly shut the fuck up now, homely liberal? Yeah, please. The homely liberal does not shut up. Yeah. Uh, and says that now Lord Grantham knows Daisy's name. Lord Grantham says he, he, I knew it before. <laughs> And he thinks that the homely liberal is upsetting both Daisy and Mrs. Patmore, whose, tame, whose name he knew without even having to think about it. <laughs> Branson just sighs, and the Dowager Countess tells Lord Grantham to drop it. Uh, but sadly, the homely liberal cannot take a hint yeah. and suggest they send for Daisy and ask her themselves. Lord Grantham correctly. Right. I can't believe this scene has made me sympathize at all with Lord Grantham. I know. Because he's like, we're literally having dinner. They literally are cooking it right now. <laughs> yeah. 
So he says Daisy's too busy, but the homie liberal says, oh, well, she'll come if you summon her. And Branson says that they don't want to embarrass her. Which is an even which, better point yeah. to me. Like, who wants to be called in this front of like, no, all their Daisy's employers like, and their employers' friends and relatives? Am I a bet? <laughs> am I a fucking bet? <laughs> Carson also, again, points out it's the busiest time of the day. But the uh, homely liberal laughs smugly. So Lord Grantham says to go ahead and fetch her and Mrs. Patmore. The Dowager Countess tells Mary that Lord Grantham may regret this. And I think that should be upgraded from a may to a definitely. (laughs) Definitely will. Right. Yes. In Mary's room, Anna is unpacking and Bates comes in to help. He asks if she enjoyed herself. And she says she stopped in Piccadilly. Uh, and she asks if Bates remembers Green talking about living near Piccadilly and Jimmy Kent calling him a lucky tyke to be living there. God, I miss Jimmy Kent. Right. Uh, Bates says that he wasn't very lucky in the end, which I suppose is true. Uh, and Anna agrees and then Bates heads out. Again, I wish I could remember who knows what about what. <laughs> I know. So whatever. But I don't care enough. I don't either. I'm like, we could even go back and like listen to our old podcast. But I'm yeah. like, oh, that seems like a lot of effort. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah. Carson brings a confused-looking Patmore and Daisy up into the dining room. Mrs. Patmore asks if there's anything wrong with the dinner, and McGee assures her otherwise everything's delicious. My husband's just being a prick. (laughs) And the Dowager Countess apologizes for interfering in this strange and inconsiderate way. Yeah. Lord Grantham asks Mrs. Patmore if she thinks Daisy's lessons have disrupted the kitchen. Daisy preemptively apologizes if she's made trouble. And Mrs. Patmore says she hasn't really, you know, because when she was yelling out about her bally book, she was upset about something else. Right. Daisy goes on to say that the homely liberal has opened her eyes to a world of knowledge, even if she's a cook her whole life, but she has choices and interests that she'd never have had without the homely liberal. Isabel has to get her overbite in here (laughs) and say brava and shrimpy says it's quite a testimonial mrs patmore asks uh if they can go because they still have the pudding and the savories because it's their jobs Mm -hmm. and lord grantham says that the lessons are successful and he's pleased to hear it right so he's just been like okay you win a homely liberal yeah this seems great but she won't let the dinner party succeed that easily so she asks if he's really pleased mary finally loses it with her mary style and just tells her to let it go she's proved her point and the homely liberal says she's just proved that lord grantham wants us serfs to stay in our allotted place from cradle to grave which is not what he said at all no nor is it what you've proved in any way what you've proved is that it's fine for daisy to be you know doing her math yeah you had won. You woman. proved a that he didn't know her name and that she is fine doing her maths. Yeah, take the two victories. Yeah, you know he had accepted it. Jesus. Good anyway, grief. he totally loses it. Like Mary's restrained. Like, yeah, you know Mary might like later strangle her in her sleep. <laughs> sure. He snaps and stands up and says, "All he wants is to see the homely liberal leave and never come back." He storms out. Mary asks the homely liberal if she's happy. Branson is near tears. Yeah. Uh, and the Dowager Countess says, "Edith, dear, are you still writing that interesting column?" <laughs> and Edith says she is. And uh, the Dowager asks what it's about, and she says. Uh, what's everything about the way the world is changing and everybody drinks and I think that's supposed to pass for poignance at this late date? Uh, possibly, yeah. <laughs> it's about the right of women to steal babies if they want to. <laughs> Your baby, my choice. <laughs> Downstairs, two anonymous maids are asking about the commotion as Anna walks by. She enters the Carson cave where Hughes and Carson are discussing. 
keep going. Are discussing the homely liberal. I just want to point out that the homely liberal has atrocious posture. Okay. Like atrocious. <laughs> That's fine. Just another in the litany of reasons <laughs> to hate her guts. <laughs> okay. Uh, Carson is pissed at the homely liberal, as you would imagine. Anna thought said she's thought that Thomas had exaggerated what had happened, but Hughes says no for once. Carson says Mr. Branson must be mortified, but Anna says that sometimes they've forgotten the Mr. Branson that was downstairs with us, spouting Keir Hardy with every mouthful, and that he's not really one of them upstairs. Carson wonders in that case if Downton is the right place for him, and Hughes says that she imagines that Branson wonders the same thing. Yeah, also, Anna, like, that's not what was going on upstairs at all. (laughs) If anything, he was really backing away from Keir Hardy. He was, yes. Uh, But at any rate, we're about to learn more about this in the second of our recurring segments, Tom Repeats History, with our resident labor lover, Tom. Welcome, Tom. Thanks. This is another in what has apparently become a weekly series of mini bios of random socialists. Uh, Yeah, this sounds appropriate for us. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, comrade. (laughs) So Keir Hardy was born in Scotland in 1856, uh, started work at age seven as a message boy, which ended his schooling, but his parents taught him to read and write in the evenings. He worked at a whole series of crappy jobs, including uh, heating rivets and working as a trapper. And the job of a trapper was to stand at the door of a mine, opening and closing the door for a 10-hour shift in order to keep the air circulating through the mine, uh, which sounds awfully tedious. Yeah. But then a six-month mine lockout forced the family to sell all of its possessions for food, and one of his siblings took ill and died as a result of it. Uh, but by the time he was 20, he'd worked his way into a skilled mining job and began getting involved with his local church, uh, some very specific Presbyterian uh, denomination. And that, Our Lady of the Mines. <laughs> possibly. Uh, and that got him sort of used to public speaking, and the miners started to turn to him as like a natural spokesman. Which quite quickly led to him getting branded as an agitator, and him and his two younger brothers were blacklisted from working in the mines. Oh, man. Uh, which was kind of a mistake, because he now devoted all of his time... <laughs> to agitating? To agitating, yes, and organizing. It's funny how people think that you can shut down an agitator, because you can't. <laughs> no, not not without extremely drastic measures. I was going to say, not without a bullet to the head. Yeah. Like, honestly, that's what happens. Yeah. So in 1879, Scottish mine owners uh, combined to reduce wages, and that led to a wave of strikes over the next couple of years, and Hardy became a delegate to the National Conference of Miners and began moving from town to town, uh, supporting strikes. The unions were also new that none of them had really any strike fund to pay workers during strikes. So uh, Hardy would do things like negotiate with merchants to sell food on credit, and his wife would be running a soup kitchen out of his home in whatever town he was in. Uh, and he also turned to journalism to make ends meet. He was associated with the Liberal Party uh, and later started his own called The Minor, which is a creative name, I think. Uh, but he soon became disillusioned with the Liberals. He felt that they wanted the working class's votes but never really intended to do anything about it. Uh, so he decided to run for Parliament. He finished last, and it did not bother him at all. He was like, nope, I'm still definitely going to do well at this. Oh, no, he's like Eugene Debs. Yeah. Uh, he helped form the original Scottish Labour Party, which is not the same as the modern one, but whatever. Uh, and in 1892, he successfully won a seat in Parliament. 
and he refused to wear the standard frock coat when in Parliament. He wore a plain tweed suit with a red tie and a deerstalker, uh, which got him lambasted in the press. He was accused of wearing a flat cap. The- oh my god. Yeah. Not which- a flat cap. Yes, which he actually didn't, but that was the popular image of him. I mean, any publicity is good publicity, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he advocated... He was uh, in favor of a graduated income tax, free schooling, pensions, the abolition of the House of Lords, and women's right to vote, all of which sound great to me. I concur. Uh, In 1893, he helped form the Independent Labor Party, which was related to the current Labor Party in ways that I don't follow because I don't understand how English political parties work. I'm really not too concerned about it. Yeah. Uh, so in 1894, the future Edward VIII was born, and Parliament was proposing through traditional uh, congratulatory address to the crown. And Hardy suggested that they add a message to that address of condolence to the relatives of the 251 coal miners that had just been killed in an explosion in Wales. And that suggestion was turned down. And so he gave a speech when he said... From his childhood onward, this boy will be surrounded by sycophants and flatterers by the score, and will be taught to believe himself as of a superior creation. A line will be drawn between him and the people whom he is to, whom he is to be called upon some day to reign over, in due course following the precedent which has already been set. He will be sent on a tour round the world, and probably rumors of a morganatic alliance will follow. And the end of it all will be that the country will be called upon to pay the bill. This is all the future Edward VIII he was talking to. And the Wikipedia article that embeds that speech helpfully provides little hyperlinks to various parts of it to the future events which that speech, in fact, successfully predicted. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's an amazing speech. It is. That's fantastic. Yeah. It uh, lost him his seat. He, he, like, I'm you not know. surprised. You can't <laughs> be saying that about the king. Right. And Especially when, when, when it's the a... king is a baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's rough. People are like, listen, he's going to hit you with his solid gold rattle. Get out of here. <laughs> uh, so he spent the next five years building up the labor movement, leading to the final like, official formation of the Labor Party in 1900. Uh, and in the first election, uh, he was one of two MPs from that party in the very first time they ran. Uh, in 1903, the Liberal Party made an agreement not to compete with Labor in certain constituencies so as not to split up the anti-conservative vote, uh, leading to the next election in 1906 when the conservatives got destroyed. Even the prime minister did not even keep his seat. Oh, wow. Like it was a landslide. So in 1908, Hardy left his leadership position and spent the rest of his life campaigning for votes for women. And he worked uh, closely with Sylvia Pankhurst <gasps> in that. Mm-hmm. We love the Pankhursts yeah. round these parts. We do. As well as self-rule for India and ending segregation in South Africa. He was one of the people, like uh, we, the one we talked about last week, who tried to organize an international strike against World War One and kept going around to anti-war rallies. But sadly, he died in 1915 at the age of 59 after a series of strokes. Oh, man. Yeah. So he didn't even get to see the end of the war. No, he did not. Uh, and, you know, one imagines his hard lifestyle did not, you know, yeah. was a factor in his... No, but look how much he accomplished. Yeah, and he was just, he just was on the right side of everything. I mean, yeah. you know, so many people, you know, might be in favor of, you know, more equality in income taxes, but they'll still want to keep India in the empire mm-hmm. or, you know, not allow votes for women or, you know, all these things. But he was, you know, he had a very broad view. We should all aspire to be more like him. That's, yeah, especially Branson. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thank you, Tom. That was enlightening as usual. <laughs> You're welcome. Up in McGee's bedroom, Lord Grantham hits his pillow and says he can't stand that homely liberal. And McGee's like, dude, we all know. Yeah. We're all around. <laughs> then Lord Grantham supposes she thinks he made a fool of himself. And McGee says, what does it matter? And yeah. she's clearly still put out with him. Right. Then Lord Grantham says McGee didn't behave much better with him flirting with that ghastly traveling salesman, <laughs> which is not even a thing. <laughs> right. When has this traveling salesman ever been anywhere near Downton? Anyway, he turns out the light, and then McGee says to make sure he gets out of the bed on the right side the following morning. Yeah. And I'm like, you better, dude. You're being such a jerk. Yeah. It's problematic. Uh, meanwhile, Isis and Bricker have gone down for a nightcap <laughs> and are flirting madly. <laughs> She's like, bark. <laughs> and he's like, I say. I think everything is about Downton is beautiful, including its dog. <laughs> <laughs> I must pet you or I'll burst. <laughs> I don't like the word burst. I know. Honestly, it has very icky connotations. I've never to been me. a fan of it. Yeah. Let us strike it from the record. <laughs> so All right. Moved. Attention. Everyone, nobody's allowed to use the word burst anymore. <laughs> Branson stands looking out over the front hall. Mary walks upstairs and says good night and says, Oh, cheer up. You gave Granny a wonderful evening. <laughs> Look, Mary. That's yeah. Mary's got the right attitude out of all these people. Yes. Like even if I feel like she shits on Edith too much. Right. But short of that. Yeah. I mean, and like, who cares? Edith's not even supposed to be there. Right. <laughs> Mrs. Patmore downstairs is telling Daisy that the homely liberal's out to make trouble, but Daisy says the homely liberal's brought her to life. Mrs. Patmore says she's not popular upstairs. And uh, Daisy quickly changes the subject right. and suggests that Mrs. Patmore write a letter to the war office explaining why Archie deserted, that it was, you know, mm-hmm. PTSD or whatever they would call it. You know, shell, shock, shell shock, right. right. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Patmore says she wouldn't know how, but Daisy volunteers to write it for her. And Mrs. Patmore says that it wouldn't do any good. There are all these rules in place and his lordship wouldn't lie about that. But Daisy says that if enough people protest, they'll change the rules. And then Mrs. Patmore says that Daisy's trying to show her that she's not afraid thanks to her learning. Daisy agrees and then Mrs. Patmore says they'll do it tomorrow. And this is a great scene. Yeah, it is. Like, <clears throat> well, because Daisy, I mean, the, Daisy has in fact gotten the right lesson out of the glorious mm-hmm. revolution. Yeah. That if enough people protest, then things can change. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I just, you know, and I think... That is what's useful about the weird politics of this show and the fact that they're all shown with these very anachronistic mm-hmm. opinions. But it is, I mean, and I said this before, like, if there was somebody like Mrs. Patmore now saying, you know, but it just snowballs over the years. Right, right. And, you know, you fi- you finally wind up, you know, shell shock is a serious thing. Yeah. You know, it gets named different things. Treatments are developed. Right. People aren't dishonorably discharged for being correctly horrified <laughs> by fighting an imperialist war yeah, yeah um anyway but it's always just nice to see a good scene between uh leslie nickel and sophie mcshara like, yeah it's really great and we don't get enough of those anymore yeah they have a great relationship mm-hmm. and just kind of and an interesting one you know yeah. it's, it's very close um but just you know in this sort of you know well i mean like mentor mentee yeah and i think it's interesting because i mean their lives can't have been that terribly different Right. But But, Daisy has access to all of this new technology mm -hmm. and, and, you know, changing thought. Yeah. And so it's almost, you know, when Daisy says, you know, what will life be like 34 years from now? Right. Yeah. You know, we're already kind of seeing what that relationship would be like for Daisy and her undercook, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. 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 Officer Bummer pedals up to Downton. Boo. (laughs) 
in the Carson cave, he says that he's kept a plain clothesman, a plains clo- plain clothesman. I think yeah. it's plain clothesman. Yeah, it's like saying mother's-in-law. <laughs> yeah, a plain clothesman watching Gilly's place, and he saw Anna there. Hughes says, "Well, she must have been delivering a message to Lord Gillingham from Mary, which she, she was." was. Carson says that he knew Hughes would have something sensible to say. Uh, how could he not have come up with that on his own? He's not as smart as you think. That's true. <laughs> he has to have that whole contraption that he can't whine. <laughs> yes, I have uh, wine Lexi. <laughs> <laughs> it is a terrible burden, my lord. <laughs> my secret shame. Red is white. <laughs> Claret is brandy. <laughs> uh, so Officer Bummer says that she then went to the spot where Green died, and apparently at- the exact spot. Right, and I'm like, I don't like. How closely are we measuring this? Yeah. She thought there was a circus. <laughs> That's what we believe up in Yorkshire. <laughs> he asks Vanna. I thought there'd be a strong man. <laughs> I could use a strong man. Not this limpy fellow. (laughs) Asks if Anna could have had a grudge against Green, and Carson remembers her liking him, and Hughes agrees. Officer Bummer says they might question her, but he wants to confirm whether she was in fact at Downton the day Green died, and Carson says that he believes so. Which is not confirming anything or helping anyone. And wasn't she not at Downton? Uh, Wasn't she in London with Mary? Yeah, because, wait, yeah, I think so. Right? I think that's I right. I forget why they were there. Yeah, well, I feel like Gilly must have been involved because that was all, you know, going on yeah, at because, the time. Well, except, wait right, a minute. because. Wait, 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 no. We don't know what the day was that he died, I don't think. Because remember in the last episode of the previous series, both Gilly and Blake show up randomly right. at that church bazaar? Yeah. Um, And he just shows up to be like, oh, my valet's dead. Like, do you want to go make out? <laughs> right. Um, Wait, was that the same one that Lord Grantham showed up late to? Maybe? Maybe. Maybe Lord Grantham killed Green. <laughs> <laughs> Just by accident. I didn't like the way he looked at my dog. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah, so we don't remember what happened. Shocker. <laughs> right. Conclusion? We don't know. <laughs> Advantage, all of you. <laughs> At the Dower House, Shrimpy sits with the Dowager Countess and Isabel, and uh, he has found out that apparently there are refugees in Hong Kong from the Karagans cohort, right. working as servants, taxi drivers, milliners, and prostitutes. And uh, the Dowager Countess <laughs> makes a very catty remark. Yeah. Uh, and Isabel interrupts her own uh, tingling meddling sense <laughs> because, you know, she had that whore institute. <laughs> Maybe she could franchise. <laughs> what happened to all those whores? Ah, they're fine. <laughs> Isabel fixed them. <laughs> they're all just sitting by the side of the road like, well, we've got these sewing machines now. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> Um, so Isabel wants to know why she's going to all this trouble if this woman is no better than a comet whore. <laughs> but the Dowager very cryptically says she owes it to her. Yeah. And then Shrimpy says that Susan has written to Annabelle, right. um, who's like, a person right. of interest possibly to this family. Yeah. I don't, maybe, I, yeah, no idea. 
Anyway, but she's furious that they've taken Shrimpy in. And then the Dowager says she's been in a rage since she was playing with her dolls and that Susan doesn't scare her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Isabel says she doesn't sound neutral. And the Dowager says she doesn't take sides, but she could never be described as neutral. Right. Which I think is great. Yeah. I think that's a really – because, like, you can have your opinions and be very outspoken about them mm-hmm. without, like, enacting them. Right. And without sort of, you know, overriding – the uh, you know the the people the the people involved's point of view yeah so McGee, Mary, and Branson are walking through some woods. Mary asks if Lord Grantham has apologized to Tom. He says that the homely liberal infuriates him, but he is sorry. Branson agrees that she does know how to go goad Lord Grantham, which is not a very useful skill, really. No, like what are you going to goad him to do? Ah, uh, go to his room. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Mary asks why Branson goes on with the homely That's liberal. That's a seriously good question. Yes, agreed. Uh, he says that Sib- since Sybil died, he's forgotten what it's like to be with a liberal, basically. Uh, the Lord Grantham says that it's as if he's joined them and now is backing away. Why is this family the Borg? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't understand this. Anybody yeah. who comes into their orbit, they're like, shoomp. <laughs> And they're like, why, we kidnapped you. Why don't you have Stockholm Syndrome? Right. You you agree with all our political beliefs now. Yeah. One of us. One <laughs> of us. One of us. No, and like, can he not be living with you and taking your money and also having outside interests? Like, Edith owns a newspaper. Let him have this. Right. And like, I mean, it is, again, just like if Sybil was still around, she'd still be like shaking things up and yeah. being liberal. Um, she'd be nicer about it, but she'd still be one of you. No, and he, but he's in a terrible position. Yeah. Because he's only there because of his connection to a now dead person. Right. And you know, she can do that because it's her family. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not his family. And you can't be a dick to anybody's family the way that you can be a dick to your own. That's very true. Which really is the enduring value of family, I think. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, they arrive at the fabled Pip's Corner, and Mary asks why they're there, and Lord Grantham says that he wants to explain his position. I just rolled my entire head and (laughs) eyes completely around. It's true. I saw it happen. Mary says she knows his position, that they're just there as caretakers, but some things have to change. And Lord Grantham says that, yes, they must, but they mustn't destroy what they're trying to protect. And this Leeds guy would ruin the place with his cheap, ugly houses, but he will find a different builder that won't ruin the village and will build beautiful, expensive houses that only nice people will live in. I don't know. Right? And, like, look, give in. Be a slumlord. I don't care. (laughs) Branson says it might be hard to find such a builder, but Lord Grantham says that it's worth trying. Uh, Maybe check with the mafia. I hear they're big in construction. (laughs) (laughs) I'll miss you, monsieur. See, boss, I told you this ad in the church bulletin would pay off. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, Branson agrees that it's worth trying, and Mary rolls her eyes and gives in. I am Lady Mary. (laughs) Yeah. As it turns. I know we've said that a lot of times. Yeah. So Lord Grantham wins this round. And I mean, you know, I'm just by itself, I'm fine with this, you know, him saying... You know, he's compromising, and it's a reasonable compromise that isn't insane, and you're letting him be right about this one thing, fine. But he's just so wrong about everything else that it's just an annoying way for the episode to end Right? I'm like, wait a minute. Are we supposed to – what? Yeah. But, you know, all right. Yeah. So that was his episode. We had a great time. We did have a great time. This is the most fun I've had recapping this season, too. Like, I don't know what it is about this episode. It's a lively episode. It is a lively episode. Things are fun again. Yeah. It's like before the war. (laughs) Yeah. 
No, and I'll say one thing that's weird to me. I don't know why this Thomas storyline isn't landing because I feel like it ought to be landing better. Well, I don't think they're giving it enough time. Yeah, like, I think, it's in here like twice. Yeah, I think that's what it is, and like very briefly, like well, it and never... you only barely have a sense of what's going on. Yeah, and also if he looks that bad, how is Baxter the only person picking up on it? Yeah, that's true. Like. I don't get it. Yeah. But I like the concept of it. And pretty much everything else that's going on is great. Yeah. Like, as, as annoying as the homely liberal is, you know, she keeps things spicy. Yeah, she thinks I'm, she keeps, she keeps them homely. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's time for the, uh, Abby Awards. That's right. And we don't know what they are. <laughs> right. We're, we're gonna decide these in real time. Which, again, Because another... I don't want to alarm you, but I was out till 3 a.m. last night. <laughs> it's another temporal adventure here. Yeah, so, uh, first up, uh, Worst decision. Okay. Worst decision. The homely liberal has a case, I think for sure, mm-hmm. uh, by continually escalating. Edith, baby stalker. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, worst decision. Um, man, this is hard. There weren't that many bad decisions, though. Yeah. I don't uh, know. Shrimp, I fully support Shrimpy's divorce. Right. That's good. I think. I mean, I think not just the baby stalking, which she seemed to get away with, uh-huh. but then the actually knocking yeah, on the okay. door. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. Edith, worst decision. You need to get it together, lady. Yeah, for real. Go make something of yourself. Yeah. All right? Then you can make a case to this baby. <laughs> uh, best evasion? I think you got to go with Gilly. <laughs> yeah. Gilly completely <laughs> evaded getting broken up with. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Like... Mabel Lane Fox had a pretty no. Uh, Rosamond had a really good one. Oh, about yeah. how she knew it was That's a pig true. farmer. Which one? Although but, that was aided by Mary's disinterest. Yeah, and that yummy dress. <laughs> no, but I think Gilly just completely <laughs> being like, "Nope, we are in love. We are still getting married," <laughs> which is always uh, the marker of a marriage that is likely to be incredibly successful. <laughs> What's his first name? Gilly Tony. Yeah. yeah. He's like, look at this notebook where I've written Tony and Mary Gillingham over and over again. <laughs> uh, be, it would be something else, wouldn't it? Doesn't the countess... No, it, yeah, it would... Right, or, I forget what his title is, but McGee's name, I think, really is Cora Crawley. Okay. But her title is Countess of Grantham. Right. No, he's got... He's He's got some other name. It, I, they used to say when he was a you know a dashing pirate. Oh, oh right. Remember when he used to be a pirate and we thought maybe he had some cleverness. Yeah, those that, were our time. That really never panned out. <laughs> Did it, Peter? Pan out. <laughs> he Boom. would be. He would be a worse pirate than Captain Hook. <laughs> <laughs> right, Captain Hook. You know you're supposed to go get gold and stuff, right? <laughs> it's like nope, just fight and lose to a boy over and over again. <laughs> and uh, occasionally kidnap some stereotypes. Well, fair enough. All right, worst overbite. Here's where I think the homely liberal comes in, actually. <laughs> okay. It's a staggering reversal. Yeah. Of what we normally do. It's like. But she's just, and look, I'm a socialist. Yeah. Okay, homely liberal, I want to be on your side here. Yeah. But like, there are places to agitate, and then there are these fancy dinners you See, keep going to. Because what the overbite does is it blinds you to other people, mm-hmm. right? Like, it sticks out and in, impedes your view, mm-hmm. and that's what's happening with the homely liberal. Her liberalism is just blinding her to no, reasonableness. Look, she's and- got an incredible opportunity here to insinuate herself with this family and seize the means of production. <laughs> yeah. And she is failing to do so. Yeah. All she is doing is antagonizing the biggest employer in the county. Yeah. And just for what? Yeah. Just to be a bitch for yeah. no reason? And to be self-righteous. 
you know, because she thinks she's won every exchange she has had. Yeah, she absolutely thinks. Well, no, and it's like, can women even vote at this point? I think it's still they have to be 30 and landowners, isn't it? I think that's still the case. I think it was in the later 20s. that. So, it- like, we're still in the era of voting with your pussy. Right. Like, if you want to vote, find some dude that listens to what you say <laughs> and you can boss around. Yeah. That's what I did, and I never vote. Yeah, LG's got to vote in the Lords. Ugh. Oh, my God. That's totally correct. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm even more mad at her now than I was before we <laughs> gave her this award. <laughs> God damn it, you stupid. <clears throat> okay. Gibson girl. Right. Look, I really think maybe yesterday, even in the morning, before this whole time slip happened, <laughs> um, I do not like these dresses. We did talk about we this. We did, yeah. But I just, it is so hard to get jazzed. About any of these clothes, man. Right. They are not cool. So I think we should give it to that yummy dress I that's was gonna, on a nameless model. Yeah, I think. I'm like, can we please go to more of these dress shows and get out of these frumpy weeds? No, the thing that Mary was wearing to that fashion show, mm-hmm. like, it looked like she Like, was... are you trying to get a discount because <laughs> you look so terrible? She looked like, she looked like the full-grown version of, like, a baby in the Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> like... <laughs> Rosamond wore a really cool hat to that fashion show, but I was mm. like, why are you wearing this here and not to a cocktail party in the Alps? <laughs> All right, fine. Model, you get Gibson girl. Uh, the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion. AKA the Backy. All right, who did the worst? Good question. I remember liking one thing McGee wore, so she's out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, the dowagers. Fi- I feel like we can't even include the dowager for co- consideration. Anymore. Yeah, because she's, she's dressing for a different century, right? Yeah, um, and she's got a fairly limited number of dresses. She, does, she, she wears. doesn't really wear that much. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Thomas, by virtue of looking his clothes looking better than his face, <laughs> Mrs. Patmore for taking off her apron. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, there's like a, the only thing I can remember disliking is that Mary dress, like I say. But I mean, I know nothing else was that great. But. I know. Let's get. Let's just give it to Charles Blake, <laughs> just because he's so attractive. Just to give him an award. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I would give it to Mabel Lane Fox, but her outfit was also atrocious. Oh wait, this is the back. Yeah, this is the back. Damn it. Yeah, get it together, God, man. I can't. <laughs> we already gave it to that nameless model. If you'd like to switch it to Charles Blake, it's not. No, too- oh, that okay. model was on point. All right, fair enough. <sighs> Who was the worst? Um, I don't feel like, I don't want to give it to Maybelline Fox because she just got here and she was so great. Oh yeah, listen, and her outfit was bad, but like it was not that, it wasn't backy bad. Yeah. It was just bad. What did Edith wear? She's been looking good. I don't think we can even consider her for this. All right. I feel like Rose was fine. Rose has just been fine this whole season. And yeah. Usually she like has like a jaunty sweater or something that right. I can latch on to. Yeah. The homely liberal... No, we can't give her two awards. Yeah, that's true. Although she did look like she was wearing one of those, like, 1990s, like, kimono dresses. Yeah, it was not a great look. I remember that. Shrimpy for shaving his beard. (laughs) We could go with that. All right. Shrimpy for shaving his beard. All right. (laughs) We're done. We made that happen. Cutest baby. Uh, yeah, it's Sibby. It's Sibby, guys. I mean, we geez. honestly might have to just retire the category <laughs> if George and Marigold are never going to get it together. Right. Uh, but I mean, she was not to be denied this week. No. So. Oh, man. Yeah. Dunk. <laughs> uh, and now the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths. Yeah. Listen, I don't know how you feel, but I thought she cranked it up to a solid five this week. Wow. I really do. I thought we saw her at her finest. She had that really great thing about hope. 
in the crypt yeah, that's with the true. Russians. That was really great. Uh, uh, yeah, and her, uh, what was it? her other really good advice? I don't remember. We're just general not taking sides. Yeah, and, and like, she, you know, she tried to steer that dinner party back on track. Yeah. Um, you know, she, she's finding this princess. Like, I feel like she's doing really well. Yeah, she called her a whore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's some five level shit right there. Well, all right. Yeah. Great. So congratulations, Mags, if you're listening. We assume you are. <laughs> right, obviously. Um, yeah, so we'll be back for next week's episode. Mm-hmm. Can't wait to see what happens. Absolutely. Very exciting stuff. Yeah. Until next time. Up yours downstairs. downstairs. Luncheon out.